When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. And if you are new, welcome. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe at the end of the episode. We have new episodes every Monday. Uh, And if you've been around for a while and you haven't subscribed, you need to subscribe. You need to listen to us every week. Um, Our our numbers are constantly going up. And if you don't want to miss out, uh, subscribe. But also... If you have thought of a band, if you have a favorite band and we haven't talked about them yet, hit us up on Instagram and Facebook. That's the best way to get in touch. Uh, one time a month, we like to do um, kind of some audience participation, take some uh, fan submissions. Um, so send those in. Um, and if you would consider yourself a connoisseur, a, a, um, an appreciator of great music, go down in the description of the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Uh, down there you can become a patron you get episodes early and you get special access to our after hour segment where we talk about the bottom six worst songs of that artist and we rank them together for the end of the year where we'll do a special uh, worst music podcast bracket and we'll figure out what the worst song that we listen to in 2021 is but today i am especially excited um and Lucas and Grant know why, but I'll let Lucas do the introductions. <laughs> Lucas, who are we talking about today? We're talking about Miles Davis. This is going to be our first jazzy episode. Jazzy. <laughs> and I'm, I'm excited. Um, I have been meaning to, you know, this year kind of be the, the year that we really start to expand into different genres and types of music haven't gotten to before. And obviously jazz is one of the, you know, biggest and most well-respected music genres of them all. It's, it's you know, next to classical music, what they teach people in colleges. So You kind of end uh, up being, I, I've kind of found this to be true. You either, like, if you're a, a musician, musician, like, like more of a, tra- a trained musician, you either go into the classical category or the jazz category and if you don't do that then you're a metalhead yeah that's i (laughs) like all all musicians that are like super stupidly proficient either they forsake all formal education because they do metal or Mm -hmm. they are classical or jazz or or a combination yeah or they'll there are some metalheads who are huge into classical Mm -hmm. or huge into jazz that is that I've noticed is more rare. 
but I'm sure it happened. Well, we've got a we've got an episode coming next month where we will have a metal band that has some very serious jazz leaning. Ooh, okay. It's kind of our saying but, for the year. Uh, it, it's it's kind of along the lines of like good music can be found anywhere. And yeah. I'm especially learning that because I tend to like more fall away from metal. But even as like especially in the Opeth episode, which seems like it was forever ago. But I was just like, you know what? I've been, I've been wrong. I, I am wrong about metal. There is good metal. It's not. I felt the same way about metal as you guys probably feel about jazz. Where I'm just like, they all just play the same power chords, and you know. Yes. But, but I was wrong, and so I hope that you guys' opinion by the end of this episode on jazz will change, even even if it's only from disdain to appreciation. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is going to be an, an interesting journey this episode. So, um, also, we're starting Ethan, something new called First Thoughts. Yes, uh, we're gonna we're gonna kind of set a baseline for kind of what we're what we felt and what we thought going into before even kind of going before we listen to the songs, and um, you know, we'll we'll kind of talk about what we already knew and what our presuppositions were, and then it'll kind of give us a nice little. Um, you know, connector in our final thoughts to kind of say, this is where we started and this is where we are now. So Ethan, you um, are our jazz guy. That's one of your guy. That's one of your favorite genres to listen to, to play. So um, what got you into jazz and um, what did you know about Miles Davis before uh, coming into this episode? Um, So my story is, and I think I mentioned this last time. I don't remember if it was in the final thoughts or the after hours, but I was a, I pretty much exclusively listened to dream theater because Lucas actually introduced me to them. Whenever, oh, you're whenever we, whenever I was in, when did you move to Tulsa? Uh, that would have been my seventh grade year, your sixth grade year. Cause you were a year under me. I think you were like a freshman and I was in the eighth grade. Yeah, because I didn't because I didn't discuss I discovered Dream Theater the my sophomore year. Then I must have been a freshman because I think we started playing Dream Theater songs in in pet band. Yeah, because I knew about those songs before I really knew about them. And I remember playing them on drums and I was like, this is pretty sick. And so then for like pretty much for the next two years, I like dove headfirst into Dream Theater because I was a drummer I was a budding drummer keyboard player kind of music person and at that time I hadn't found anything that was that technically challenging and so hearing people play like that for the first time I was immediately like my ear was just drawn to it and then whenever I was probably a so my freshman and sophomore year it was all dream theater metal whenever I was a junior there was kind of a I was starting to get a little bit more into jazz, but it wasn't until like really my senior year that kind of the same thing happened. We had a, a pet band teacher and his name was um, uh, Mr. Atkinson, which oh, he, yeah. he ended up being a pretty big uh, musical influence on me, but it was pretty much there was one day in jazz where he was kind of fed up with us. Like he, he like, cause uh, nobody was like really practicing and everybody kind of hated jazz because we all loved playing the rock pet band stuff. And then jazz season comes around where we go to all the competitions and everybody kind of rolls their eyes and huffs and puffs. And that was, you me. know, 
I hate the jazz part. <laughs> like the first half of the year, we were playing football games and basketball games and all this stuff. And then the second half of the year, like whenever all the sports kind of died down, it was like jazz band season competition wise. So everybody was kind of meandering in. No one's excited. We, you know, get there maybe 15 minutes before class starts and, and we play the songs that we actually like. And then we're forced to do jazz. So he kind of senses this animosity and this kind of backhanded sarcasm in us. And we're all like, oh, it's so easy. Everything's boring. It's so slow. It's so stupid. It's the same thing over and over. And so what he does is kind of tongue-in-cheek, he assigns us a song to learn in one day, and it's called Gotta Match, and it's by Chick Corea. And he plays it for us in the class one time at the end of class he plays it and he says all right try like i want you guys to like play that right now and 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 it is um so it's jazz fusion it's kind of like the highbrow jazz it's it's like the dream theater is to metal what chick korea is to jazz you know and so we hear and i have never heard drumming like that in my entire life and the second that i heard chick korea i i instantly converted over to jazz in that <laughs> one day i went from being a metal head to a jazz fusion head only by listening to one song maybe i should listen to that song and i'll send it to you uh, after the episode or i'll tell you in the after hours i'll let you listen to it and live react to it okay okay um but so i go home and I learn it on drums and I come back the next day and I'm the only one in the class that can play up to speed. And it's not an easy drum part. And then the next day I come back and I know it on keys, which Chick Corea is like a keys player. So I know the song on keys. And then I come back the next day and I know the song on bass. And then I come back the next day and I know the song on guitar. And I come back. The... So I, I, every day I came back and could play everybody's parts in that song. And then I just became obsessed with jazz fusion. And in my obsession with jazz fusion, I started to almost like come down off of that a little bit and like settle into like the roots of jazz, which was like, so what by Miles Davis, which is in our playlist today. And a lot of Miles Davis stuff is um, the core changes in it are pretty crazy. And that was kind of my first real experience with like wanting to learn music theory. Cause I would like be listening to all this jazz stuff. And I was like, this is insane. Like, Dream theater stuff, for some reason, I didn't really... The music theory never... Like, the solos were complicated, but the chord changes weren't complicated. But in jazz, it was like the solos and the chord changes and, like, all the melodic stuff was complicated. And so then I just... Like, jazz taught me, made me want to learn music theory. It made me want to get better at my instrument. And then it just settled with my soul a little bit better um, than metal. And so I've kind of just... That was like my second launching point from music. And then off of that, I kind of got into pop through like a jazz lens. So that's probably a long example of my musical journey. But that's my that was my first exposure to jazz and why I am the way I am now. <laughs> and then um, what is your previous experience with Miles Davis? I I know a lot of his staples staples because whenever you start playing jazz gigs, um, and I'm sure it's the same. So anyone that like goes to like bars or casinos or whatever, and there's like a cover band, like there's kind of like, if it's a rock cover band, you kind of know, like there's songs that that band is going to play. Yeah. You know, in jazz like that, that's called, they're called jazz standards. And it's like whenever, whenever you are a jazz musician and you want to go play in a jazz band, like, 
there's something called the real book and it was published and it had like 200 jazz standards in it or something like that. And it was kind of expected if you were going to go out and gig that you had, you like, you knew all of those songs, like all of the jazz standards, you just know them. And so whenever I started going around gigging, almost all of the sets were picked out of the real book. And so I kind of had to learn about Miles Davis and all of his big stuff just from, uh, from a gigging musician standpoint. It was like, I haven't really heard of, like I know of him, but I had never listened to his stuff. And then I went and listened to it. I was like, oh, it's that song. And then I would just play it on the drums. But I don't really know his history. I know he, I know his contribution to music. And I think that whenever I was like a freshman or sophomore, I was like forced to watch a Miles Davis documentary, but I don't remember any of it because I, at that point in my life, the last thing that I wanted to learn about was Miles Davis and not play my instrument. <laughs> so I know that, again, I made the joke in this before, but like Lucas probably knows more about the this period of jazz than I do just because he's so studious about it. I, I more know Miles Davis from a musical standpoint and from a catalog standpoint and from a gigging musician standpoint. But other than outside, outside of like, he kind of just changed soloing <laughs> on trumpet for forever. Other than his contribution to like the improv world, I'm a little bit more in the dark, which is another reason I'm so excited. All right. Well, Grant, what's uh, what's your experience with jazz so far, as well as your experience with Miles Davis? Well, as as a metalhead who hangs around, you know, elitist metalheads, jazz is always. You know, like, ah, oh, pop sucks. Ha ha. Good joke. But it's like the joke where if you play one note and it's wrong, then just call it jazz. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like that that i i love telling that joke because it's like that's what jazz sounds like to somebody who like who like me who doesn't even like dip their toe in jazz very often at all um the only jazz that i really listen to is during christmas time and it's really smooth jazz if you break it down i think it's not really even real jazz so pretty much you know Pretty yeah, much, just pretty much saxophone solos over right. top four yeah. changes, and and so I don't know, but I don't even know the difference between jazz fusion and jazz. Like you keep talking about how jazz fusion and jazz are two different things. I don't even know. It's yeah, it's the same as metal genres, but less. There's less of them. Oh, like subgenres. Yeah, jazz fusion is like. But like, what's the difference? Jazz. Um. I'll okay. show you in the after hours. It's 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 just like jazz is all, all also all right. like there's bands that are doing jazz now where it's classified as jazz, and I'm like I don't even know because there's like orchestras that aren't big band orchestras that are playing like contemporary classical style arrangements, but with like pop and jazz instrumentation behind it, and they're calling it jazz because people solo over it. Ah, uh, I mean it's pretty cool, but it's. It's starting to get harder to define oh, that's genres. True. My understanding of fusion had always been the it's the it's the combination of jazz and rock. So fusion that's... in general is like you can have um, loosely. I don't think there would be any. You wouldn't be able to look for this on like Apple or Spotify, but like there's like rap and jazz fusion technical stuff where it's like. 
this is jazz, but you rap over it. So it's a fusion of two genres or there's, you know, there is jazz and rock fusion, but there's also like jazz fusion as like its own genre as like jazz fusion with itself almost. It's more like using 80s instruments okay, that to play jazz. Cool. Is probably how I would. And there's like acid jazz, which is just like probably the same as like acid rock, where it's just like people were just tripping out whenever <laughs> they wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, my thing, I used to tell Lucas this is it's like, you know how like metalheads can get really, really extreme yes. into metal? <laughs> and it can get like almost like mind numbingly complex, like math metal and stuff. Like you can get like way out into the ether with yeah. metal. Jazz is the exact same thing, but just on the opposite end of the spectrum. And it's almost like they are so opposite that it's actually a full circle. And then they like, <laughs> yeah, somewhere where it's like, these are yeah, actually the yeah. same. <laughs> Miles Davis and Dream Theater are the same. Yeah. It gets to the point where it's just like, there's people doing jazz stuff where I would be like, this is a lot more like Dream Theater than it is like At- Miles Davis. But it's After still listening to the jazz. songs, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of like, Miles Davis cameo and like a liquid tension experiment, you know, or like John Petrucci like played a jazz solo for some jazz fusion band, you know. But you have to think like Miles Davis was like OG. So this is like he changed it from what it was, which is a little bit more like I don't know. Lucas will go into more of that, but like yeah. this happened think- and then like everything after this, like, had a definitive change to it because Miles Davis just, like, rocked yeah, see, everybody's I, face off. I don't, yeah. like, I know so little about jazz that I didn't even recognize his name. And I was going to ask that question, like, why we why we are talking about him specifically. I didn't even know what instrument he played, really, 100%, until you said trumpet. So, really, this is, like, a <laughs> oh. pure, this no, is a pure so pretty much as close as you could get. I don't know anything about the genre. I don't know anything about the artist. I don't know anything at all kind of thing. Okay. Well, um, Ethan, to kind of uh, clarify on something you said, really, you could say, I wouldn't classify so much Miles Davis as OG. <laughs> um, he is what I would probably consider the, f- he ushered in the third wave of jazz as far yeah. as his iterations. So jazz really has its, you know, its beginnings in the in the 20s and the 30s. That's when it that's when it became a main obviously it existed before then, but it was that was the first time that it becomes a nationwide recognized respected genre mainly when Louis Armstrong came along. He was kind of the first superstar. And then you had the the other pretty much the 30s was like wave 1 the late 20s and all the 30s. That's where you have your your Duke Ellingtons and your Cab Calloways and and your... Um, uh, Duke Ellington is... I, love, I freaking love Duke yeah, Ellington. Your Count Basies. It's like, that's, that's where they lived. And obviously they had careers that stretched beyond that. Yeah. But, um, you know, you... That's when they became popular and where you would say that they were the most successful was in the... Yeah. And that's where all of the big jazz singers come from as well. Um, guys like Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald, they got their careers first as the singers for these guys. I'm pretty sure that Frank Sinatra, he the way he got his start was he was Count Basie's singer and then decided to go off and have a solo career. And Ella Fitzgerald, I think, was Duke Ellington's. And I was like, that's how those legendary names 
began. And so, um, so that's kind of like, you know, it's, that's what you consider, I guess, kind of like that, that, that nice, you know, it's, it's, it's not super musically like whirlwind yet during this time period. It's, you know, obviously they're, they're, they're introducing some, you know, the, the elements that make up jazz, which is, you know, not your typical pop chord structures but it's not it's it's not the mind-bending stuff it's still very accessible to the public it's a re that's the reason why it became so big and then when you get the 40s that's when you have bebop and that's, you would classify as the second wave that's what i would classify as the second wave because you had you know you had the the original jazz singers like you know i would say frank sinatra is the biggest example you know he takes that form of jazz and turns it into what we call like the big band you know just the very you know the crooner um you know just that sound you you instantly know what that sound is whenever you bring up big band and frank sinatra very much had a very specific sound um but then when when you had in the underground was bebop and Bebop is where jazz really became complex and incredibly technically challenging. That is where you have guys like Charlie Parker and Thelonious Monk and uh, Dizzy Gillespie. Those were kind of like the big stars of that period. It's very fast. It's very much, it's, it's pretty much about, that's where a lot of the improvisation really comes into play. Uh, did you do anything? Uh, did you find anything out about Charles Mingus? Yes, I do. He's a bass player. Yeah, and I was just wondering because he was he was a, yeah he was part of that. Um, that's where you got you guys drummers like Max Roach and um, and Kenny Clark. That's where that's where those guys lived, and that's actually where Miles Davis started. He was part of Charlie Parker's band. And, you know, that's that's where he began his career was as a bebop trumpeter, which is is crazy. I know he started off with Charlie Parker. If you guys I first knew about him from watching Whiplash because they talk about Charlie Parker, literally that whole movie. (laughs) And they talk about him like he's literally a god. And I mean, to jazz people. He like you if you go back and listen to any of his stuff, it like it, that's jazz is also one of those things where it's like it's evolved, but like you will still go back and listen to a, like a Charlie Parker's one, and you're just like that's still good. Like it, it's that's still hard, you know. For many people, people still transcribe that stuff and learn from it. Yeah, for many people, he was the greatest. And so you know, talk about an incredible part. And also, Dizzy Gillespie was in that same band. That was. um that was Miles Davis's intro to the music world was uh, he, he grew up in St. Louis and uh, Charlie Parker's band came through and their second trumpet player was just sick. And so they're, they pulled it. They're like, Hey, you know, trumpet. And he was like probably 17 at the time. He was like, yeah, he's just like, here, we need a trumpet player. Come up on stage with us. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment that Miles said that he knew that he was going to be, a uh, career trumpet player because he said that that was the that was still no, nothing in his career ever uh equaled or surpassed that first night he played with Parker and Gillespie wow 
<laughs> and so that was kind of that was that was almost it was like the the moment that he had been chasing after ever since. He said there was a couple times it got close, but he said that that was still the greatest night of his musical yeah. career, which was very first night. It's all downhill from here. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. That's what caused him to move from St. Louis to New York City and go, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a go because I gotta I gotta find Charlie Parker and become a part of his band because that was that was the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. So before we get to wave three, how did uh I guess how did he grow up? Like what was what was his how did he even get into trumpet in the first place? Um he Grew up in a pretty normal home. He didn't grow up in severe poverty. His his father was a dentist. Oh, wow. So he was pretty well off. You know, he doesn't have like a Jimi Hendrix story or, you know, someone that, that grew up super poor and was like music was the only thing that he could cling on to. It just happened to be that, you know, he took lessons just because it was something to do and he just happened to fall in love with it. There's, there were, kind of wasn't really anything super crazy there wasn't really that there wasn't a lightning moment for him as far as learning how to play that lightning moment came when he played with um with charlie parker and dizzy gillespie and that was kind of like when you went okay i i now i know that this is what i need to do for the rest of my life uh you know he he had a pretty good upbringing you know he was always close with his family and um he got uh his high school sweetheart pregnant very young but kind of you know left them at home to go pursue his uh his music career but he start he became a full-time musician in new york city at the age of 18 like he Dang. just he immediately just jumped in and you know, he talks about how he really was out of his depth, but that he was a very quick learner and that you really couldn't find a better teacher than Dizzy Gillespie. Who was, you know, he was he was the trumpet player of the 40s from everything that I've gathered. Like when it comes to the 40s, he's the guy when it comes to the 50s, Miles Davis was the guy. And so, you know, there's there's a very direct through line you know he very much took him in as an apprentice and was like i'm gonna you know teach you everything that i know (laughs) and so um bebop pretty much is the main mode of the 40s and a little bit into the 50s and, and you'll see that in some of um some of the miles davis songs that we're gonna look at you know he's he's most known for his smooth modal jazz but you know that really didn't come until about 10 years into his career you know and until then he was a he was a bop player and that's and that's what he learned to play and so um you know, it was when he kind of had felt that that genre had been taken to its limits and that it was feeling tired that he realized that he needed to do something different. And that's where the the, the very popular Miles Davis was born. All right. 
So, um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's kind of where that goes. And so you've got, he pretty much goes out on his own at the beginning of the fifties and it was really around 57, 58 that he starts to come onto this idea of modal jazz, which, and Ethan, you'll have to correct me in this if I describe this wrong. But pretty much the whole idea of modal jazz is that what came before in bebop was it was very chord uh, based. It was chord progressions. It was mm-hmm. it was the intention was to have as many complex chord progressions as possible. That was that was the whole idea of bop was that it was not for your average listener. It was meant more for your, you know, your your jazz aficionados because it's very, um, it's very intense. It's very musically dense. It's it's not centered around super uh, memorable hooks. Yep. <laughs> it's um, you know you listen to it and sometimes you're just like I have no idea what's happening here. You can you can yep. appreciate how talented they are while they're playing it, but then you're listening to it and it's just like, oh boy. <laughs> This is this is a whole other level of of skill and complexity. Yeah, it's it's for soloing. They do it for soloing. Specifically. Yeah, technical prowess of soloing. Mm-hmm. And so Miles Davis just fell. as just like there's nothing else that can be done with this. It's we've we've taken it as far as it can go, and he felt the limitations on chord based soloing because you just like you can only do so much with it. You you can only do so many variations on top of the chords that you're doing, and then you know you just have to do it again if you want to keep soloing. It didn't allow for super long extended uh, soloing to where it was it was very much you had to set a time limit. Rather with modal jazz, it's not based on chord progressions, but it's based on modes. And so you have a certain number of bars that there's not a chord progression. It's just a mode that's being played in. Of course, you know, when you're playing what's called the head, which is a kind of the, the, the melodic idea at the beginning and the end of the song, you have a melody that's being played. But then once you get to the solo section, the other instrumentalists that are not soloing can really kind of play whatever they want. They don't, they, they're not, tied to a chord structure and so rather what will happen is usually you'll have what's an AABA uh, structure where you have uh, two times through where you're in one mode then you shift to a completely different mode altogether for the B and then when you go back to the A you go Mm -hmm. back to the the mode that you started in and so because of that um, it allowed for a lot of freedom on not just what the support players could do, but what the soloists could do as well. It gave them so much more breathing room to go wherever they wanted to go. They didn't feel tied down by the chord structure, the chord progression. Yep. And Miles was really the first to introduce this to jazz. And that's why that album, Kind of Blue, ended up becoming as big as it did. Uh, I did. I looked at some statistics. This is the it's the best selling jazz record of all time. It sold like five million records, which for a jazz album, that's insane. Yeah, 
you know, a lot of big time rocket records don't sell that many. Um, it's it's that one jazz record that everyone usually has listened to. Like if you were to find a normal, you know, music guy that has a record collection, if you're going to bet on finding one jazz record on in there, it's going to be kind of blue. Yeah, that's it true. was ranked by Rolling Stone as the 11th best album of all time. Dang, that's high praise from Rolling yeah. Stone. Yeah, <laughs> from from someone that them, would not expect I, to have that on their radar. Yeah, like we we have famously disagreed with Rolling Stone at times, but it's just more of the fact that that's not a jazz leaning publication, and they understood the importance of that record. It's it has it has shaped a lot of music. It's really really where soloists have learned their craft people were mm-hmm. soloing and improvising solos before but just the 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 free space and that's another reason why it's been referred to a lot of smooth jazz you really can't do a lot of hard bopping songs in modal jazz because then there's a lot of confusion on what everyone else should be doing if you're playing really fast and there's not a set guideline on what yeah. notes you're playing that can get out of hand very quickly Yep. And so, you know, the reason why it's 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 slowed down and why it's very sparsely arranged is because that's just that's the strength of the of the mode that they're writing in. And so that's that was really what what Miles brought as far as changing jazz is taking it away from from chord progression style writing to modal writing. And really, whenever you – all the times that – because I was a band teacher for a couple of years at the same high school that I took jazz lessons from. I gave jazz lessons. I still really knew not much at all about jazz. It's 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 kind of laughable to say that I taught anything during the jazz part. I really leaned on the students <laughs> that I knew knew jazz a lot. But the thing that I did know was that all of the songs that we learned from were very modal in their approach. Yes, you had chords to kind of help guide things along, but that wasn't the focus. But the fact that now our modern ear has gone, like, we relate doing scales with certain chords as being, like, an introductory way to solo, Mm -hmm. you know? I think is evidence of Miles Davis's influence on how our ears even perceive what a solo should be. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it really, it really was a game changer. And, and then of course you just, he was such a great player. I mean, you can't really deny anything about that. He was a great composer and he also had maybe the, the best jazz band ever constructed around him now that band was constantly evolving but there's definitely a um a reputation around the kind of blue era band that he had and i don't know uh ethan if you know about who was with him during that time i know uh i know some of the names but because it's it's one of those things to where like you know I 
um, I knew enough about jazz to where I knew a lot of the names and um, I was I was surprised by who I found was on that record because it was just like I knew them as um, as iconic players in of themselves like I had no idea that his two saxophone players were John Coltrane and Cannonball Allerley yeah. I was just like oh. <laughs> to have John Cole. It's the but jazz kind of has a way of like how like it's like whoa Miles Davis was with Charlie Parker uh-huh. you know and like he learned from and it's like well yeah John Coltrane you know was Miles's backup guy. There's this really cool thing about jazz where it's like since all of it is mostly improv, like the closer that you get to the talent, the more likely you are to be the next talent. Yeah. It very much created this, um, this system for kind of like, you know, if you want to become one of the great, uh, players, you start by, uh, playing with the great players. It was almost kind of like, and he, he fired John Coltrane several times. Like, like, how can you? Like, well, he like, oh, yeah. he had a he had a really bad heroin addiction at one point. That'll do it. Yeah, but but being like, you just fired Coltrane. Yeah, yeah. Miles Davis. Like, Miles Davis how, didn't give a crap about anything or anyone. Not in the sense that he didn't care about them, but he was like, he didn't care who they were. If they didn't, if they didn't do what he wanted them to do, he was just like, you're out. Yeah. I don't. I don't care. If, I don't care if you're the biggest name in jazz right now you're gonna do what i tell you to do and you're gonna play the way i tell you to play or you're out there's some chuck Schuldinger vibes right there oh yeah there's another another that was, connection that was another thing that was really different about the way miles davis approached was that he was not a likable guy <laughs> okay. he like now jazz guys were known to be notoriously sour guys off stage really but um on stage they were you know you you think of louis armstrong that's um yeah where he's where he's smiling and grinning and cutting jokes and even even charlie parker and dizzy gillespie did that at times as well it was just kind of the thing miles davis was the kind of the first one to really come around just like i'm not gonna put on a fake smile for you i'm not gonna there's tons of like meme videos of like people like like old recordings of Miles Davis and he'll be listening to a solo and he will be grimacing at the soloist in his band because he thinks it's mm-hmm. terrible. And now Miles Davis is like there's so many videos like a piano player will like play a little thing and he'll stop playing on his trumpet and he'll just look at he'll just stare him down and stop soloing just to stare them down to be like do not ever do that ever again while I'm playing the mm-hmm. trumpet. And then he'll go back to playing, and I'm just like, so now Miles yeah. Davis is uh, Rolling Stone, in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was, um, he was a brutal dude. You know, the um, you, there are other jazz artists really picked up from that afterwards, but he was kind of like the first guy to just be really no nonsense. He, of course, you know, um. You know, when he took care of his guys and made sure that, you know, they were going to play the best that they could. But at the same time, like, you know, 
he's like, if you're if you're on drugs and you're you know showing up late and not uh, rehearsing, you know you're gonna you're out. It's like you can do drugs, just be on time and play good. Yeah, as long as you're not nodding off and you know you're not missing rehearsals, he would he would very much be like, you know, I don't I don't care, but as soon as it starts interfering with your work, you know you're out until you can sort yourself out. So that was that was his mindset, and it was it was all about um, it was all about the final product. And and he hired Bill Evans. Yeah, Bill Evans. Bill Evans was really the one that um, kick started the uh, the modal phase of his career. He was the piano. He was his piano player. Mm-hmm. And because when he decided I want to do the, a modal approach. He asked people around, it's just like, who's the best piano player for this job? And they all told him, get Bill Evans. And so he was just like, okay, Bill Evans is going to be my guy. And uh, yeah, the I, I feel like the piano playing during the kind of blues songs is really a big part to why those songs have the magic that they have. Um, yeah. obvi- obviously... Miles himself is great, but if you were to pick an even even the saxophone, like you take the solos, really the piano is what's setting the the foundation for those songs. It's yeah. it's what the piano is establishing and the space that's creating. Because if you look at um, the, all the piano players of the Bop era, they're very um, they're very crazy. It's very much, you know, and we'll hear that in the uh, the bop songs that are in this playlist. Is that it's it's very much a very rhythmic instrument. It's it's almost like it's yeah they hadn't learned like the soulful kind uh-huh, of the the piano was very much considered a rhythm instrument in the bop era. Where yes, it had soloing, but it was like that was they were considered part of the rhythm section. And it was when when you have Bill Evans playing on kind of blue, it's not a rhythm instrument at all. It's very much a a melodic component rather than a uh, rather than a rhythmic one. And just he he really helped to create so much space. There's so much space in those songs. And again, that that space allowed the soloist to, to do everything that they wanted and needed to do. So how many how many albums did Miles good Davis? God, make? I don't think I could uh correctly answer that question. Cause while there's a lot of records there's so many solo records or compilation records. There's so many live records. It's it's hard to keep track of what is considered an official release and what isn't. Mm-hmm. I know that when I did my ranking for the for the songs, just staying in the time period of the fifties, I had like a hundred and fifty songs and f- almost fifteen hours worth of music to listen to. It was hard. Wow. It's one of the hardest 
that was up there with Aretha Franklin for the most difficult research I've ever done. Because on top of that, just really not knowing much about him at all. So it's just it's yeah. and I and I still have barely even begun to um, tip the iceberg. I mean, there's still so much music. Because he died in like yeah, somewhere around there, and And he never stopped making making music. music. So when when we talk about where stuff is ranked on the playlist, this is a very large number of songs that it's ranked against. Very large number. So, um, yeah, it's and. I still don't completely trust my ranking of them at this point. <laughs> as long as we can yes. the worst. That, that is important, but it's just like, I, I, I got to a point where I'm ranking songs. I'm just like, I don't even remember what some of these songs sound like. <laughs> and so I, I, I think that this song is better than this song, but I got, I can't remember. I, I felt like I would get like the general um, place in the list. Right. But as far as the actual specifics, I was kind of like, I don't really know here. I'm kind of guessing because there's just, you get to a point is, it was like it's, it's all starting to blend together. Yeah, it's all yeah, just solos. it's a lot of solos. Some of them you have really, they have very specific um, parts to them that you just like really stand out to you, and other times it's just like, well, this sounded almost exactly like the song I just listened to. How do I, uh, how do I differentiate here? Yeah. But I, I did find that there is a, a not a very large amount of bad songs, at least not in the fifties. Now I'm, I know that you have told me before, Ethan, that when he gets like to the sixties and seventies and gets starts getting more into fusion territory, that it gets pretty weird. It's the same with all all bands that started in the 50s, you know? Like, even I'm sure I think rock and metal has this problem too, where it's like in the 60s and 70s, everybody was going through this weird acid, yep. super experimental, let's try to push music to the most impossible yep. limits and, and new sounds and, and effects are coming. Really, I blame effects mm-hmm. in the studio. Because everyone's like, oh, how can we be super experimental with all these new effects and all these new synthesizers that we have? And everyone was in the experimental phase, and it just made some weird, weird, very difficult to listen to. Yeah, Yeah, the metal guys, that happened in the 90s, and they all tried to do grunge or new metal. (laughs) The cringe came from... Yeah, it it came (laughs) from from Nirvana and pantera and so yeah like they like the metal guys had their their time in the 80s and then once the 80s were over it was it was pretty much done for a lot of metal bands i would say i would say the most experimental period happening in metal is right now oh yeah where is metal going i have no idea it's 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 weird i love it i do too it's branching every direction like when you've when you've got um, a a death metal band adding a full time saxophone player to their group, you know that 
you know the thing and let me tell you what it works really well if you want to hear some of the strangest stuff you've ever heard but at the same time have it be really awesome listen to a band called uh rivers of nile they had an album called where apples know my name and it's pretty awesome but they have like they have like smooth jazz sax solos going over death metal and it's just it's like on paper it did not work but it does but that's kind of like the place where metal is at now it's it's like like you got another band called zeal and ardor that is mixing black metal with uh slave spirituals what <laughs> and it's like great that, that sounds pretty it's, like it could work so, it's so interesting it's just like that's that's the point we're at it's just it's it's they're going how can we come up with the most absurd combination of influences and put it together into something that's never been done before so basically metal right now is the beatles at the end of their career i would say more towards the, the midpoint of their career okay they, they, uh, at the very end of their career they kind of reined in all of the wild ideas and just concentrated on really great songwriting but I, I I I understand what you mean. Yeah. So um, so I guess it's interesting to see that two different genres are kind of following the same trajectory. Yeah. That it's the like even we, even we talked about the three waves of Prague, and mm-hmm. now there's three waves of jazz that are very distinct, and certain artists are coming in introducing different things that completely change the entire landscape. Yeah, I, I'm I'm continuing to agree with Ethan Moore that jazz and metal really exist in the same trajectory. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like parallel lines that never intersect but are moving yep. in the same direction. <laughs> it's like these two things never touch, but they they are still more similar yeah, than so random weird. lines. It's like a whole nother universe. Like mm-hmm. in a in a parallel reality, it's it's a jazz. parallel universe. It's a parallel reality. Jazz is just the parallel reality of Prague. Man, and I and I swear to you, Grant. After after we're done with after hours, I'm gonna send you a link to a jazz fusion song, and you the the one that that turned me. Oh. And and oh, I, I, I can listen to it to during it. after hours, and it's great because I've heard every Dream Theater song, and you probably had at that point too. So yeah, we're we're in the same place there at least. Okay, uh, I'm just glad you didn't get to because there's a really weird album called um, like it's mostly good. It, he did an album called Decoy, and and it was in. Uh, 1984, and there's some good stuff on it, but there's a song called Robot oh 415, and it's that weird. That doesn't sound like, like a good name for a jazz song. <laughs> the thing, the thing that I will like, say, fusion. The thing man. that I will say about Miles is that he had a truly restless, creative spirit. He was never content to just stay where he was which I felt like up up until then most other jazz artists were just content to kind of just keep doing what they've always done Yep. 
and do covers uh-huh. of all the old guys. Stuff. He was really the first one, and I would say probably no other jazz artist did it better than him. Looking through different other artists, I can't see anyone else that had as long of a relevant career in jazz as Miles Davis did. Um, even into the 70s, he was still on the cutting edge of where jazz was going. Like, um, his 70s album, Bitches Brew, was is like kind of considered to be the ground zero point of fusion. Yeah, that's And true. so it's just, you know, even 30 years into his career, he was still not just making great albums, but making the albums that dictated where jazz was going as a whole. And that cannot be understated. Yeah, it's so much stuff comes from like, yeah, Bitches Brew. It's like you can hear like it's 1970 and you can like hear like the future in the in the song. Like now knowing like all the context, like hindsight 2020, like there's organ sounds and guitar sounds and stuff where it's just like Dude, like, there's some, like Miles runs uh-huh. the Voodoo Town, the voodoo down. or the yeah. Miles runs the Voodoo Down. It's it's like this is almost yeah. funk, you know. Like this is almost like and also the kind of status. metal in a in a way. This will be this will be an interesting thing as we get into the songs. I think that like Ethan, you have this perspective on the overwhelming like or the overarching, you know, jazz. I guess, narrative that, you know, maybe me or Lucas don't necessarily have that you can like put things together as far as we like, as far as the specific songs, maybe some of them don't apply, but like fitting them into the big story of music, you know, I'm ready. Yeah. We're going to take I'm a break ready. here. When we come back, we're going to talk about the six songs that we have picked for this episode. So stay tuned. We're going to be right back. This episode of the Good Music Podcast is brought to you by Southern Safe Rooms. When severe weather threatens, you want the maximum protection for you and those you love. If an intruder forces their way into your home, You need a secure space for you and your family to take shelter in order to stay safe. If you want a secure place to store your guns, guitars, or other valuables like drums, a custom shelter is the solution you need. Southern Safe Rooms builds custom certified safe rooms that can be installed in your home, garage, workshop, or anywhere you have a concrete reinforced slab. Southern Safe Rooms builds all of our safe rooms in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and can install them on any reinforced concrete slab. The Southern Safe Rooms custom storm shelters can withstand wind speeds of up to 250 miles per hour. Southern Safe Rooms have been tested by Texas Tech University and are built to exceed FEMA standards to withstand an EF5 tornado. The Southern Certified Safe Room is constructed with the highest quality materials, far exceeding conventional storm shelter construction. With over 110 years, count them, of steel manufacturing experience, Southern Safe Rooms knows how to build a secure shelter for your home. Call 918-584-3371. 
or visit our website, southernsaferooms.com. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Miles Davis and his influence on the jazz genre. And now it is time to get into the six songs that we have selected for this episode. So, for those of you who are new, welcome. And you're probably wondering why we have this segment. We just talked all about Miles Davis and jazz. What's the point? Well, Lucas, could you clear that up for them? Oh, what is the point indeed? The point is so that we can get more concrete about the songs and the artists that we're talking about. So um, this is a set that is constructed for those of you that may not be familiar with Miles Davis or really for those of you that are not very familiar with jazz at all. This is going to be kind of like a great introduction to the world of jazz in of itself. So uh, it's not just me picking what do I think are the six best Miles Davis songs. If I did that, we would have a very unapproachable set because (laughs) some of his best songs are some of his weirdest songs. And I don't want to do that for any of you guys that have never (laughs) listened to jazz before. That would not be very um, inviting. So I'm putting it together with the sensitivity and the fact of just like – you know, there's going to be some people that have never listened to this kind of music before. What's a set that's going to introduction for them, as well as a set that has a great emotional flow to it from start to finish, that the songs transition well off of each other, and that by the end, hopefully you have a great catharsis moment. And the way that you can listen to these songs is if you go to the uh, description of the episode, you will find a link to a Spotify playlist that has not just the songs in this episode, but all the songs in our previous episodes as well. So please make sure that you go um, listen to these songs. It would be terrible if you listened to this entire episode and you didn't even listen to the songs. That would kind of defeat the purpose. (laughs) So with that, we're going to go ahead and start with really what I think is just the best place to start with Miles Davis. Really his 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 most popular song and a song that I actually have some personal um, connection <laughs> with. And that is So What? First off, you need to explain the personal connection for those of us out there that did not attend Lincoln High School. And what yeah, so I, I... It's surprising to me, but I only took band one year. And that was my senior year of high school. And um, I was not at all a jazz person. As well as when I joined, I was a drummer. And they had four drummers there already. And I was the worst of the four. As well as I was the one coming in where everyone else had already been playing in band for several years and kind of had built up some, um, some credit. I uh, was coming in as the newbie. And so they were just like, well, you know, we're full up on drummers, but we don't have any bass players. You want to learn bass? And I was just like, fine. <laughs> and so I never I never practiced bass. I didn't like it. I love bass now. It actually took uh, Ethan and I playing in a bluegrass band for me to fall in love with the bass. <laughs> Which that's we a, we that's have a strange history. That's another I was one of those four itself. drummers. Uh, yes, he was. I was a junior. Whenever he was a senior. Uh huh. Yeah, that was uh, that was you, Aaron Brown, Jordan Lynch, Nathan Cruz, and 
and Nathan Cruz. And yeah, at the time, all of you guys were better than me. Because I was, I was very much stuck in my I only play metal double bass and had no ability to play anything simple. And so when it came to anything that was outside Metallica or Dream Theater, like I just physically couldn't play it. Thank God I <laughs> don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I'm a better metal drummer than I've ever been. But at the time, you know, I was resentful. It, and so it was like, came, it was like, hey, we're going to play Brick House. And he couldn't play it. But then it's like, we would play. Like as would, I am. Like we would play as I am, and he would play it like four bait and like better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it didn't help that I could play like three songs perfectly. Yeah, three of the songs in our set were metal, and the rest of them were like more like get the crowd pumped, like jump. Uh-huh. Which just God, I look back on that time and I'm just like okay. I could have been so much better <laughs> on drums and on bass. But so we got to the uh, the jazz part of the year, as Ethan was explaining, and we had to do competition. And I was playing bass, and so what was one of the songs that we played, and I was terrible at that song. And that's a pretty bass. I mean, the bass song. the bass line is the hook. Yes, and so there was a lot riding on my shoulders. It, to it's move. a great hook. It's a. Great it really hook. is. It's, I think it's. I think it's maybe the best hook he ever came up with. Yeah, it's really catchy. And you know, that's he's he's he wasn't really a hook centered. Um, no, he was not writer. And so to say that is very much to kind of you know not dog his other songs. It's just his other songs are really not hook based. And so um, this this was a really strong hook that he had come up with. And yeah, so I, I just I completely butchered that song of competition. <laughs> but, it's not an easy baseline. No, it's it. not. And but you know, it's one of those ones that I feel like I would have a lot of fun playing now. But at the time, I just I had no idea what I was doing, and I tried to solo, and it was one of the worst things that I've probably ever performed in the history of my music playing. <laughs> Tell me about the yes solo. Yeah, I played. I tried to play the melody line for um, uh, "Yours Is No Disgrace" as my solo, mainly just because I was I was starting to really get into yes at that time, and I I asked the band teacher, and I, I asked him very cryptically. I was just like, "So in my solo, I can play whatever I want, right?" Yeah, you can play whatever you want. I could play like the melody line of a song I really like. Yeah, sure, go ahead. <laughs> so I was just like, "Well, cool. I'm gonna play this," and I played it. I <laughs> but there's like a modal change. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> like it wasn't in E or anything. And I remember I was playing in front of the judges. I played it, and I played it incorrectly. Not only was I playing something that didn't fit, but the thing I was trying, <laughs> trying to, go to emulate wasn't get even that right. right. And um, <laughs> and then there was, and then I, when I realized I was playing it wrong, I just stopped. And there was like this, this awkward silence where it was just the drums, and then I just came back in with the bass line. Soloing is <laughs> <laughs> hard if you like. It's your first year of jazz, and you're a metal player which is more technical. And I guess there's solos, but like usually metal has a, a storied history of like copying people's solos, you know? 
Uh huh. And going into jazz where it's like you do not. Yeah, you have to play something that is uniquely you. Yet at the same time is is acceptable for the song. Uh, I'm still not great at soloing. Soloing is not my. It's just not my personality. I'm not a. I'm not a spontaneous player. Mm-hmm. And so, but I. I definitely know that now. I could have played that solo so much. <laughs> but so that's that's my personal connection with the song. And um, so now we can actually start talking about the song itself. Yes. Uh, so this is the um, the first song on the album kind of blue and i just figured that it would be it would be appropriate to make it the first song of the set um something that i learned about this album that blew my mind was that um every song on that record including so what was not only done in one take but it was the first take that's sweet wow there were no second takes of any of the songs on that album. They were all done in one take, and that's that's pretty great. But you could also say, well, you know, if they if they rehearsed a lot, you know, that would that's not completely out of the realm of possibility. They didn't rehearse these at all. No rehearsal. You just go in. No rehearsal. He explain. He didn't even give them any music. He just explained to them the idea of the song. He said, this is kind of what I want the song to sound like. Let's play it. And that's what happened. That's amazing. The only, I know thing, that. the only thing that was pre-planned was what the head was. Yeah, that's that's very common in all of that. But yeah. And it's just but it was just insane that, you know, usually I I feel like if you're gonna do that, it would still take a couple takes. Yeah. But good lord. That so that I mean, really captures the spirit the spirit. That's probably why he was able to record so many albums. He was like, Yeah, I only need about an hour of studio time. And then he yeah. goes in and plays one of the best selling albums of all time. And he's like, All right, bye. Yep. <laughs> it's pretty much just another gig. It's like scheduling yeah, a gig. Exactly. You just record it. It was just yeah, it was it was insane when I learned that because again, that's, that's very opposite to where, you know, rock and metal and all the genres that I listen to are like. That's sweet. Man. Is, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, that just, that blew my mind. So, um, Ethan kind of what are, as, as our jazz guy, what are you, what do you immediately hear from this song that is just like kind of lets you know that this is this is classic jazz right here? What about this kind of makes it such a big standard in the jazz world? So I think it's it's a standard because it's uh, if you're not like a, a like I guess like a theory head or like haven't been exposed to as much music from a musician's point of view, whenever Lucas talks about. Oh, the third way or the the wave of jazz where it's like oh, it's really modal, you know. Um, modal just, I guess, in jazz, the probably a better way to understand it is like we're playing in one key and then we're gonna play in a different key, you know. It, it's it's just like we're just gonna. That that's probably the simplest way, and so so what? It's a really obvious 
Um, the, I, I guess the sections are AABA. Yeah. And the A's, the A sections are in one key. And then whenever it goes to the B section, it's the exact same, except it's like a half step up from where the original key was. And so what it doesn't like try to hide, it doesn't try to like get into it in a cool way. Even wherever the bass line is playing, it's like, you know, it's just like, it, it, it does the exact same melody, just the half step up and then it goes right back down and it doesn't hide the fact that it's trying to be modal. And I think anyone's ear can kind of just pick that up. And I think it became a classic because it was, and it was also the first on the album in like a new way to even think about jazz at all. And so it was just like, mm-hmm. and modal. Just, we're going to lay it down right here. It's slow. And it starts off with like a free, kind of like a free form. And it's so cool to even, you can imagine in the studio that he's just like, all right, hit the record button. All right, start playing. Mm-hmm. Like, you, yeah, I, I love the, um, I love just kind of like the warming up feel at the beginning where it's just like, it's, it doesn't get right into it. It's just kind of like, you know, it's, they're settling in and then it's just, you know, they're just, they're going to wait for the bass to signal the cue. All right. When the bass hits it, we're in. Yep. So they're kind of freeform jazzing it until do, 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 do. And then everybody just comes in right on cue. And it sounds so good whenever the horns come in. Yeah. Like um, is perfect. A uh, a a quick question for you. You had said originally yeah. that you weren't sure what instrument Miles Davis played when you were listening to this. What did you think Miles Davis was like? What did you think was his? Well, I knew I knew he was the soloist in this song, so I knew it was whatever brass instrument it sounded like. I can't. I feel bad for saying this, and I know like a lot of brass musicians are going to get on to me about this but i it's very hard for me to tell the difference between different brass mm-hmm. instruments uh, i guess that's not coming from it's it just, it, yeah because it's just not what my ear is used to what? but i knew that he was something brass because there was obviously like that sound but through the, some of the other songs i can hear like other solo instruments and so i thought it was just like maybe he was playing this instrument for this song and somebody else was playing like the trumpet or horn or whatever. So, I mean, I never in the whole, um, in the whole discography did I think he was like the drummer or the bassist or the pianist or something. Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, before even listening, I, I thought he was like a singer. I thought he was like a jazz singer or something, you know, but hear him sing. You will. You wouldn't. Or you won't. Okay. You wouldn't want to. Oh. He's okay. Well, got, never mind. He's got a notoriously messed up voice. He blew out. Yeah. He blew out his vocal cords, and he, he talks like this. Oh, uh, wow. those are horror stories. Like you blow so hard in the trumpet that you blow out your own vocal cords. Well, that's actually, that's not how he blew his. Uh, own, but... There's. I've heard stories of people like messing up, like or like their lips get like busted. Yeah, Ugh, that's mm. gross, dude. But wait, so then how did he, or do we want to know? Um, I think it was due to a sickness. Oh, I mean, and he then, was doing a lot of drugs. Probably doesn't help. 
Yeah, the drugs actually I found was a a smaller part of his than I originally thought. He was act, he was actually uh, he was clean by the time he made kind of blue. Oh, that's awesome. Like he he kind of uh, had his drug issue pretty early in his career, earlier than I expected. Um, but yeah, he was he had been like. Like his main time with heroin was like a four year period in the fifth in the early and mid fifties. And then he got off of it. Quit it just cold turkey by himself. Nice. He's that kind of guy. <laughs> He's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. And he just does it. <laughs> but what had happened was is that he had gotten sick and that's what initially caused the tenderness in his voice. But then instead of letting it heal, he got mad at a bandmate and screamed at him. And that's what caused the permanent damage. Mm. <laughs> what Man, a instant karma. Yep. And he said that for a while he was very conscious about it. And then he got to a certain point. just like, I don't care. Anymore. It is what it is. Can't change it. So all that to say, um, no, he would not be singing anything because... He most of his completely gone. Hmm. Um, so let's talk about the solos because really, in in all these songs, those are going to be kind of the main um, the main focus. Now, for me, focusing on the solos is is harder for me because just again, my mind doesn't think as much on improvisational. So I'm going to uh-huh. be looking to you guys to kind of see what did you guys pull from these solos? What uh, what what was standing out to you? Well, again, since this was like first take, no one, it's like usually what I pick up more of, and maybe this is just because I'm I probably naturally gravitate more towards the rhythm section. But like, there's not a drum part, and there's not a bass part, and there's not a keys part. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. anyone that does a cover of So What is doing. Like, no one will ever do it exactly like these guys did it, you know, because mm-hmm. they didn't mm-hmm. write any of that. So it's like, what's well, always interesting to me in jazz is like hearing, I guess, and this is probably just the, the, the story of the whole day where it's like in jazz, it's like whoever's playing, whoever's doing the soloing um, can pretty much solo as long as they want to. Um, and you'll hear usually a lot of like uh like pseudo repetition in jazz solos because they're trying to kind of establish a motif. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. And so you'll hear like a fra- like ver- like uh gosh, this is gonna be hard to explain. Whenever I say like they go vertical on their notes, it means that they like ascend in notes. So it's like vertical pattern, vertical pattern, vertical pattern, descending pattern, descending pattern, descending pattern, vertical, 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 descending. And they'll do that on purpose to try to like create like a form with the rest of the band. And then it it's kind of like they're throwing ideas out. And you'll hear sometimes like the the whoever solo the soloist will like do a pattern and then you'll hear kind of the piano player comp a little bit off of it. Or you'll have the drummer kind of add some snare drum stuff in trying to like mock or uh, kind of like do a mock-up or an imitation of it. And the bass player, like how the bass player is moving the bass, like how far up the scale is he going? How far down is he going? Because he's pretty much going to do quarter notes the entire time, you know? 
And so it's more of like, I'm just like, you just get trained to like, listen to all the instruments at once and be like, everybody's kind of contributing ideas, but the soloist is like the lead contributor and the loudest contributor. And so you're kind of Mm -hmm. listening to this mesh pot of like, when is the piano player kind of going a little bit more aggressively and does the soloist respond to that? And does the drummer respond to that? And if the bass player goes really high up the neck, does the piano player go lower to fill the space or does the piano player go higher to like imitate? And does the soloist go higher whenever the bass player goes higher? So it's, it's less of like a, Ooh, let's, I'm not like a good solo analyzer being like, Oh, he goes out of the key here and then he comes back in and then he repeats that motif and then he comes back over. But that's more of like, you, you have to look at each solo kind of like what's the soloist, like what's his conversational tone here. And then you listen to how the rhythm section complements it is the hmm. trumpet solo that miles davis does and then it is a lot different stylistically and solo than like the saxophone solo after it. the saxophone solo is doing a lot more faster notes you know and a lot quicker ideas more quicker ideas and you hear the band like respond to that you know and so it's just that's my thing. It's just the musicianship just in general. That's, that's always what I'm listening to. Just the little things. Mm-hmm. What are you picking up Grant? I kind of, and this is, this is another thing that is close to metal is when you're soloing and there's this, you know, fast run and whatever. And then they go into something super melodic, you know, um, like the end of spirit carries on is a great example of that. Where he's like super, super, super fast. And then there's like those four suspensions that really catch your ear. There are some moments in So What where it's like really kind of atonal. He's kind of showing off a little bit, kind of jumping around the scales, not really in a particular like melody. And then he'll hit something that's super like hard major or something. Like I think there's something that it's like seven minutes or something where it's yeah it's like that's the moment of the song that's like yes like that three seconds that he just came up with off on the fly is like definitively the greatest moment of the song in my opinion it's the tension and release right yeah it was tension and release in like in a completely unplanned way and it just it's because it's stream of consciousness, so it's more it's more upper level yeah. um, tension release. So, yeah, that that's the kind of thing that I picked up on in this, and I think that you know, as I listen, because I am listening to the songs while we're talking, you know, about way to go, dude. As I listen, that's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah, I I think that I'll start picking up on that even more. Um, did we talk about where this is in the ranking? Number one number one um so another a kind of question that i have as far as his like song naming you know we talk about um instrumentals on the podcast a lot how like yyz there's a reason why they named it that or livia strangiato you know there's a reason why they named it that um it does does mildest davis have reasons why he names his songs or is it just like oh this is a cool phrase um you know, I wasn't able to come up with a specific answer for some of them. I know why he names some of them the way that they do. Uh, mm-hmm. One of his f- favorite things to do is to 
use puns on his name. Okay. Like he like he loves stuff like, you know, Miles Ahead mm-hmm. and Stones. Miles Stones and you know, stuff like that. Like you can tell that he's just he's he's just playing around with it. Mm-hmm. Um as far as so what, I I actually don't know why it's called so what. Mm-hmm. Unless, you know, unless Ethan's like, Oh well I know the answer. It's just kind of you just think, so what? That's that's what I figured it was, but I didn't know if that was the official because this is kind of like you know that that little is kind of like you you could kind of hear that those words in there, so um that's 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 my best guess. Okay, sorry if that's disappointing. Well, no, that that's fine. It's I think it's important to like distinguish between. Because if there was something there, I definitely would have wanted to hear it. Yeah. Like, distinguish between, like, a super cryptic way of naming things versus just... No, that, that, that that's not really Miles' M.O. Mm-hmm. He's not really someone that... Like, he, he takes himself seriously, but at the same mm-hmm. time, he, like, doesn't get... He's not a super artistic you know, artsy fartsy kind of guy. He's very much a just, you know, I'm not gonna be super over the top. I'm not gonna, you know, he's just kinda like, you know, just just let the music be what it is. Mm-hmm. It feels and like so, he's like it feels like he writes the songs and he's like, dang it, I guess I have to come up with a name for it. Uh, uh-huh. yeah. I don't know. So what? Jam number so one. What? So just what? Name it that. Uh what does that mean? Shut up. Name it so what. <laughs> play so what <laughs> i said it's called so what and we're gonna play so what so yeah so what? do you like the name no good all right play so what <laughs> <laughs> okay so i i could maybe almost see him it's like i've seen enough humorous names in his songs to where it kind of feels like he's just kind of like oh i don't really he care what it's he, called it's the song itself yeah, yeah, and that's fair for somebody who's so like musically inclined versus because obviously like we're not talking about an an artist where there's lyrics, right? And so that's not right. That's not his mo. And so somebody who's so musically inclined versus lyrically inclined, it makes sense that titles are not even on the radar. Mm-hmm. It's like an instrumental band okay. coming up with song titles. It's just like I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. 86 uh, BPM okay. key of A sharp major. <laughs> Can we just name it that? Go back to doing it how the uh, the people yeah. in the classic era did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, well. We've spent about 30 minutes on the first we've... song. <laughs> yeah. I think it'll go a little bit faster now we've kind of established some some things. Yeah. But, but this second song is compulsion. This is Bob. Yeah. This is this Bob. Is Bob. There's a there's a very clear change. I when I first listened to this set, I was surprised that this was the second versus the first, because you know compulsion starts with you know like a dun dun like a big introduction, almost like it's a beginning of a musical or something. I kinda, and I really kind of like that. I wanted to do something different and not be super obvious with how I'm going to order my songs. I felt that. You know, so what 
is an unexpected yet at the same time when you think about it the logical way to start the set because you know it's his song i think that it's his best song um it starts off his biggest album it just made sense to put that first but then i was just like and you know what let's just take a hard turn we we started things off with you know things super soft and cool and smooth let's just jump right into something crazy i think it's i think with jazz you can get away with it too because it's all you almost imagine like the dust settling and it's like one two i want two three and mm-hmm. and you just go it felt like it worked for this set and so um it, yeah it does work and so i was just like and i was i, I don't want to be super predictable all the time where it's just like oh i could totally see you know, I predicted them doing a song like this. You know, like how I kind of have my traditional, you know, where you put your ballads. And mm-hmm. I was just like, I want to kind of break a couple rules here this time. Mm-hmm. But jazz is all about, you know. Yeah. And this, I felt like this music made that possible. Yeah. Yeah. But but obviously we're up-tempo. And I kind of like the up-tempo just because this is what I traditionally would think of being jazz. Mm-hmm. Even though, like, yeah, there is the slow jazz where it's, like, super smooth and I guess modal now that I have that part of my vocabulary <laughs> or that word in my vocabulary. Um, but I think that the speed lends itself to a lot of crazy runs. Yeah that are still in time because when you're soloing slow a lot of times you tend to solo kind of out of rhythm Mm -hmm. but the soloing in rhythm is something that's really really just the swung 16th oh yeah the swing oh my goodness yes that's one of my favorite things of like the jazz that i've heard is the swing you know, and that's also a thing that they do in. Metal. It ain't got a thing. Don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. I'm yeah. that up. <laughs> no. Nope. Oh boy. It ain't got swing if it doesn't have the thing. Yeah. All I know. Right. Jazz. <laughs> I think. All I right. think the cool thing that you can really hear from this is like hearing like compulsion, and then like almost like rethinking back to so what, and you're just like. This is like literally what everything was before. Really? Like everything was kind of in this. Because you can hear kind of like the typical like big band slow sound, you know, like the slower, like like the Frank Sinatra's and the Duke Ellington, mm-hmm. the, yeah, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, if you've ever listened to any of them. You can hear all that instrumentation. It's just, this is just faster and with solos. And it wasn't until. Mm. Uh, kind of blue where it was just like let's slow down and, and and mess with it slow and have all those kinds of like freeform piano not parts because all this stuff was probably like mostly written out because mm-hmm. you can hear in the solos it's like there are times when it's like all right horn line come horn section come in with your part here like there's like that line is pretty it's really great but you can hear there's like a form a, and everyone is pretty much staying in one bebop scale and they kind of leave the bebop scale sometimes if they want to be dissonant and then they come back into it mm-hmm. it almost sounds like there's a saxophone solo here too there is 
But is that Miles Davis or no. Seth? No, it's the band. Okay. No, he's got a he's got a different band for um, this because this was this was much earlier in his career. Uh, okay, that's why the recording quality is not as good. Yeah, that that's another thing is for those of you who are listening, if you're planning on which you should be planning on uh, listening to the songs, definitely listen with headphones because I noticed that you pick up on more, especially in so what that baseline specifically you pick up on like more nuanced things if you're listening with headphones it's because it's like a it's a fretless upright bass and so there's just a different yeah it's not hitting as low lows and and just the yeah and just the um the nature of the recording quality lends itself to (laughs) you pretty much having to wear headphones if you're going to want to listen to every detail so yeah. Um yeah, this was um this song was in 56. Wow. So I mean still it was only 3 years before um before kind of blue, but you can just tell that there's a big difference and he was releasing a ton of music. <laughs> yeah. Like this he was re- like oh three it wasn't this into so what. This it was like like four albums in between. Mhm. Yeah, so it's you know you can, uh, you can tell that just that the whole method was different. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you got yeah. a this this has uh, uh, Sonny Rollins on saxophone, and mm-hmm. uh, and Paul Chambers on bass, Art Taylor on drums, and Tommy Flanagan on piano. So uh, I don't I don't know Ethan if the, any of those names yeah art, art on drums is yeah yeah because <laughs> for me those are those are band those are except for I knew Sonny Rollins just because he came up a lot in my um, Miles Davis study yeah but those other ones I'm just like I I don't know if these are <laughs> are guys we should be freaking out about or not I mean it's one of those things where it's like everybody that was like new york was like the place for jazz musicians and so a lot of those guys were playing with like there was like a scene there was like an a-list jazz like all of those guys were just a-listers uh-huh and have uh, obviously they've gone down in history for their own performance but like miles davis it's like it's kind of like did miles davis put them on the map by becoming so popular like or like they were already on the map because Miles Davis picked them, you know. It was kind of this like they were already the best of the best in town, or they wouldn't be recording with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but Miles Davis propelled their careers. Yeah, um, yeah. This this might be a contender for my favorite song on the album on the set. Oh, I forgot that. I forgot that we're actually saving those for for the final thoughts. So yeah, we're saving, it. we're saving it. You said it might be. It might be. There's, there's, it might be a contender. There's another song that I really like that I haven't fully made up my mind yet. So we Where could, we you could put this on the ranking. I put this at number eight. That's pretty wow. good. Yeah, for for this list, that's really good. 
okay. Because there's, no, like I said, there's a lot of songs. You know, it's not it's not as much like the Killers, where, you know, yes, it's it's something is number fifteen, but there's only you know eighty songs. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. one hundred and fifty songs, like halfway through his career. Not even halfway through, like maybe a third <laughs> of the way career. <laughs> and he only keeps going faster, releasing music, not slower. Yep. <laughs> wow. Yeah, this is just a great pop song, honestly. The solos mm-hmm. are, I mean, it's, it, I hate to say like it's typical bop solos because like that would be not giving them very much credit, but they're, they're not atonal, but they're using the bebop scale and, and playing in that, you know? And so now, um, Ethan, I can see what you mean about metal and how a lot of the metal songs sound the same. Because it took me a couple times listening through this set to be able to distinguish between the different songs. Yep. And I don't think that that's, I think that like, yeah, my ears aren't used to it. But also I think that that's that's a product of them being so improvisational centric. Yeah. And particularly this song and the immediate next song are relatively close mm-hmm. as far as the whole set goes and so that that didn't help <laughs> uh, right and then also this this sort of music because it's so free flow and so just improvisational and and whatever you tend to kind of find yourself tuning out and just going with like like tune, turning your ears off um Maybe not turning your ears off, turning your brain off, but leaving your ears on because you like what you hear, but you don't want to really process it. And so that can like, even though that's very good, if music does that, if you feel very comfortable listening to the music, that's, I think that's a thing that if you like music like that, that's great. Um, That was one of the hardest parts for me doing that is that yeah yeah i would i would have moments where i was just like okay we're in the solo and my brain would almost kind of turn off in a way Mm, mm -hmm. and it was and really where i found i was ranking songs higher was if it had extra things that would that would catch my ear and go oh that was very interesting i liked that Mm -hmm. and it wasn't just solo but that's where you um you can see and of course we're in 2021 but if like even kind of in the music history of it you can see how after miles davis has only pretty much been playing bop for like five years really about 10 years you know what i'm saying it's like everything is bop and he's just like man what's there has to be more than just because he was probably even starting to feel the monotony of it yeah, you know it's the reason why, you know, he made the change. And then he's like, "What if we did something complete?" Because you can already hear like the difference between "So What" and "Compulsion," and then our next song. Um, mm-hmm. But you can you can immediately be like, "This is a distinct. This isn't just like oh, the A section is different, or it's a little bit faster, a little bit slower. It's like this song. I can't just play the same." you know, major bebop scale over the entire song, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, nope. You can't. Yeah. Um, yeah, he had been, he had started playing with Trevor Parker in like 46. 
And so he 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 had about a five year period before he really started making music on his own in about fifty fifty one. And then yeah, he did he did do a lot of smoother stuff. It just wasn't modal yet up until kind of blue. Like he's got he's still got a lot of slow songs in there, but you can definitely tell that, you know, the centerpiece songs are the big bop songs. Where you can tell that's kind of where all of the all of the effort has been put into. Yeah. And yeah, you can just you can definitely tell once he starts getting to about like 57, 58 that he's just like, okay, we need to do something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, and move on to the next bop song. So pretty much I wanted to have two bop songs on here to just show kind of where he came from. Uh, kind of to have a sense of like we start the song off with him in his modal period. And then it's kind of like we do like a stop and go, wait, how did we get here? And then we rewind yeah. and we see how we uh, how we arrived at the modal idea. Look at look at his roots. And so we come into Blue and Boogie. Mm. Which... The trumpet solo on this is really good. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is another, just again, a fast driving song. But to me, there's, there's a little bit extra to it that I really, really liked. Where'd you rank it? I put it at number seven, so I put it just ahead of Compulsion. Okay. Why? To me, I felt, even though the the head wasn't in, as interesting, I felt the solos were were just a notch better. Yeah. I feel like there's more melodic content in the solos of this one. Like, there's more lines and motifs being mm-hmm. presented. Mm-hmm. And to me, I, whenever I I heard that little transition point, the I was just like, whoa, <laughs> that was really cool. Oh yeah, like I, I know you're talking. That, about. There kind of has to be a, something where it's like catches my ear apart from just hearing solo, solo, solo. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that, I was just like, oh okay, that was really cool. I'm gonna pay attention now. Lucas, did you listen mm-hmm. to his catalog before you did the research? Um, I was pretty much doing it at the same time. Did you, whenever you were doing your research, did you go from his earliest stuff up? Yes, I did everything in chronological. So whenever you got to Kind of Blue, after hearing all, like you're literally listening through chronologically all this bebop stuff, and then you all of a sudden like get to Kind of Blue, what did you think? Um, I You can definitely feel in Kind of Blue that it's just like, that this there's an arrival like i remembered like there there hadn't yet been a record of his where i was like every song is great yeah it's just like oh you know maybe half the songs are really good maybe even three quarters of the songs are really good that's how i felt about the album that this song is from walkin until kind of blue i felt that that was the best one that i had heard up until that point yeah Mm mm-hmm where it was just like, I, there's there's only like five songs. Most of the songs are like seven, eight. The The title song, Walking, is like 11, 12 minutes long. Grant, I'm telling you, dude. I'm telling you. I'm telling you that these, like, on Bitches Brew, there's like a 20-minute song. It's an epic. It's a jazz epic. 
<laughs> I, I don't know if you could use the term epic, but I guess we'll see. I'm just saying. Anyways, sorry. Continue. <laughs> um. So, I uh, you you can definitely hear though, leading up to kind of blue that there's that that there's something happening. And, um, you know, there's there's a couple of records where he's starting to move towards one. There's even a couple songs in the albums before where he'll do a modal song to kind of see if he likes it. Yeah. But he doesn't ever commit a full album to it. And um, Kind of Blue is the first record where he takes a completely modal approach. Where every song is is based off of that, and so yeah, whenever I heard "Kind of Blue," I definitely felt just like, okay, this album is a step above the rest. Mm-hmm. That's what I had felt. Yeah, but you know, there, like there, there were other albums where it was all soft stuff, but it was also not usually very good. <laughs> it was just, it was, you know, they they tended to be very boring. That's where, when you look at the ranked playlist, the biggest sin that a lot of the worst songs commit is that they're really boring. Yeah. And that there's just not a lot going on. And not to say that you have to have the amount of notes as say something like compulsion or blue and boogie but um even with something like kind of blue there's less notes being played but the individual notes themselves are trying to be more interesting mm-hmm. where you listen to his softer albums from the earlier period the stuff that when he's not bopping he's doing that and it's just like you can feel that it's just it's very uninteresting it's very bland it's very anemic Mm. yeah and so that's uh that that that's kind of what was going on before you got to kind of blue uh grant what did uh what did you think about blue and boogie i think that one of my Mm. One of the things that really stood out to me was, and this is weird for me to say out loud, but it was the ride symbol track because it was so tight yeah, and very clear. And it was just that at like a bajillion BPM. It's amazing. You know? What? It was jazz drum. What? What'd you say? I said, it's, it's amazing what these jazz drummers could do. It blows my mind. Like I try and think about playing at those tempos, mm-hmm. and I'm just like I I don't think I could do it. I even yeah, and- even your even your crazy metal guys that have such fast hands, like I feel like that this would even be challenging for them. Mm-hmm. And the weird syncopated nature of just everything, uh-huh. every fill and and all the weird spots in there. It I don't know because it's weird for something of a different genre it's weird for the drums of a different genre to catch my attention that's very rare Uh um it's rare for drums in general to catch my attention unless it's like obviously portnoy right or somebody like that you know who's who one of the top the top cream of the crop kind of drummers these guys Uh, are 
Yeah, and and obviously so. And so it's cool to completely shift all the way to pretty much the other side of music and find really talented musicians of the same instruments. So um, kind of question, Uh which I've had, you know, my fair share of questions already, but all of these six songs are by Miles Davis, except for this one. This is by the Miles Davis sextet. And that was, what's that was just, What's the distinction? It was just the size of his band at the time. It was still Miles Davis. And they're not they're not billed as different entities, like they're not on different Spotify pages. Mm. It was just mm-hmm. it was just about kind of billing the band at the time. Like sometimes uh, the Miles Davis quintet. Sometimes it's the the Miles Davis All Stars. Sometimes it's Miles Davis and the Jazz Giants. But it's just it's 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 still just Miles Davis and whatever band he okay. time. So, so he 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 obviously did rotate musicians, but like at that time it was just six and it just sounded cool. Yeah, um, okay. you know he there he did have his frequent collaborators. Like I would say, probably Sonny Rollins played with him more than anyone else did. Um, Max Roach played drums for him a lot. Um, obviously, you know, Coltrane got his big break by being his player for a while. Um, you know, but depending on, you know, if different artists were doing different things, they, uh, just, you know, he would, he would have, you know, studio musicians that just would come in and go, okay, I need a, I need a record. I, I want whoever is the best people that I can have available at this moment to play. Mm-hmm. It's not as much the idea of a band like we have mm-hmm. music now where it's like, you have like official members that are like, you know, like I am a, a, a classic band. Mm-hmm. So different philosophy. Uh-huh. But I mean, this isn't this isn't like a a special collaboration, like a different you know version of Miles Davis. It's just it's it's another iteration of what Miles Davis was continuing to do. Oh, I got you. I got you. Okay. Just sometimes the the band likes to, or the the label likes to spice it up and go, oh, this is the Miles Davis sextet this time. <laughs> yeah. The good old days of yeah. marketing when you could just add a word. Yep. Yeah, or just put artist formerly known as. <laughs> <laughs> love love symbol. Yeah. Love symbol. Yeah. That's exactly right. All right. So well. we've we've had we had a little detour into the the world of Bop, but now we're gonna kind of just scale things back a little bit for our next song. Stella by Starlight. Man, talk about scaling things back. This is this is your typical fourth song, which isn't bad. I think that the three song like build up and then drop to the fourth is a great way of doing it. But we are slowed way down. Mm-hmm. Especially compared to the last two songs. I think our BPM is like a third of what it was. Yeah. I uh I just 
I feel like this fits jazz to kind of just be like all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and Ethan, if ever I say something in my presumption that is wrong, you can always correct me. Jazz just does whatever it wants, man. Yeah. Jazz I, doesn't care. It's again, we're, we're, we're not just introducing listeners potentially to Miles Davis, but to jazz in of itself. And I feel like having something that kind of bounces around fits that, uh, philosophy. Mm-hmm. So um, now, do not be deceived by the album art. This was actually not on Kind of Blue. It's on the Kind of Blue reissue because it adds in four songs from a uh, from an EP that he did that you can't get anywhere else, and so it just got put on an expanded reissue of Kind of Blue. But it was at the same period. It was, and it was with the same guys. This was kind of like the EP was like the warm up to Kind of Blue. See, that makes sense because you mentioned, um, you know, during our last song that listening to the slow stuff from his early period, it just felt very meh. But during the Kind of Blue album, all of that slow. Um, all those slow songs, every note had a purpose. And listening to this song again right now, I see what you mean. You know, the banana, you know, it's like, that's just, it's the perfect amount of notes. It's like David Gilmore is playing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The beginning of Stella by Starlight is an incredible melodic showcase. Mm-hmm. And and if you're listening with earphones, because it's hard to hear, like the bass really like. Um, if you listen to our history of music podcast, we talk about this there, where it's like before we get official chords, we still get implied chords, you know. Mm-hmm. And with a bass line that's just walking quarters like this the implied chord structure of this song and occasionally the piano will kind of chime in and and make more sense out of a little bit of the dissonance of what uh miles davis is playing but it's just like whoa like to make those chord changes and and interweave a melody like that that makes sense to your brain is so it's so nice and the freaking piano solo just like something about the because i've heard the song before <clears throat> every time it gets to the piano so I feel like I get like punched in the gut in a good way because just I love this piano solo so this this was one of the Miles Davis songs you had heard before yes had you heard Compulsion or Blue and Boogie before no but that's more the the kind of blue like everything on kind of blue is kind of it's it's like it's one of those things where it's like you just listen if you're a jazz musician it's like a record where it's just like go listen to kind of blue because that's the album to listen to yeah mm-hmm. it's like yeah. liking metal and then being like i haven't i just really haven't gotten into the master of puppets album you know <laughs> it's just like yeah. dude yeah. like it's it's the metal album like well we can have a debate about yeah that but it's it's like, it's like it's like <laughs> whatever whatever the, the the best-selling, most critically acclaimed metal album is, like, that's the kind of blue of this. Regardless of what you think about Master Puppets, it's definitely the the flagship metal album. 
I would I wouldn't argue against somebody saying it's the kind of blue of metal. I I think that there are some other contenders though. But that's that is for another episode. Um or maybe an after hours debate. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh but yeah, and and anyway, so back to Stella by Starlight. Right. So the, he actually I'm, is not the original composer of the song, by the way. This is oh, this is him doing a. This was a standard at the time. Really. Mm-hmm. And this was this was his interpretation. That's this so, song was written in like the forties. So what all? What all is the same? Oh, I don't know. I didn't listen because I mean, this is a song that there's no definitive version. And that's really when you look at jazz, it's like you can't really say like this is the the original version and everyone else is copying. It's like the song is written kind of intended for everyone to use. But he wrote his own or now improvised his own trumpet. You know, Mm -hmm. the solos obviously are going to be unique because those are improvised. But as far as the atmosphere of it, the right. the I'm sure was his special touch because it yeah. does feel in line with everything else that's happening on kind of blue. Mm-hmm. And so you can tell that that's just the the creative headspace he was really in at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, something about um, Compulsion and Blue and Boogie, I feel like they would be more... Um, and I promise I'll bring this back. I feel like they would be more songs that you would go to a live place and like watch somebody play and be like, wow, they play so well. Wow. What a great groove and just enjoy watching the music. Whereas the stuff that we've heard so far from kind of blue is definitely more attuned to like personal listening. And more like you're able to kind of like pick it apart a little bit and like listen to it over and over and be like, "Ooh, man, that was a great line right there." You know. Was this also so. recorded in one take? That's the real question. Uh huh. It's ridiculous, man. The good thing man. is that you know, like I said, even though he didn't always use the same band at this point, the band that he had had for Kind of Blue, he had been using for a while, about two years. And so this band really knew each other. The only new addition to the band, I believe, was uh, Cannonball Adderley. But, you know, he had such a weird style that, you know, he was he was kind of the... He learned very what he needed to do, while at the same time adding something very unique and specific to the band dynamic. Because he's... He kind of comes from a blues background and kind of brings a, a more bluesy side to their jazz leanings. Okay. And this is still Bill Evans on keys, right? Yes. Yeah, that you keep talking about how they did this in one take, and I keep thinking about St. Anger. I guess you can't do metal in one take, but... St. Anger rap. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to do a Metallica volume two and talk about the worst Metallica songs. <laughs> yes. Purify. Okay. Uh, you flush it out. You flush it out. Man, I 
I am so glad they redeemed some of those songs on S and M too. But uh. um, but but I guess yeah, metal doesn't really attune itself a lot of the time to complete improvisation like we've seen so far with jazz. Mm-hmm. And I think that I I. I can't put my finger on it. I mean, obviously, it's just the nature of jazz versus metal, but metal has gotten towards this area of being super technical, right? Because you once you once you start having once you start praising the guys for being like such technical players, right? Like you have the guitar heroes like Randy Rhodes and Eddie Van Halen and stuff. And then you get into the real super, like, actual metal guys, you know, who start writing songs that are like solos, you know. And that's how you get into guys like Megadeth and Flotsam and Jetsam and the super intense, super fast kind of riffage. You know, it, it – you can't improvise that kind of song, right? And so metal, metal has gotten to this point where I don't think – we're ever going to see this kind of thing from the genre, this level of just one take and that's it. Because that that's just, it's very much against what metal has been for a while. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Like, maybe that's okay. Maybe the rehearsed nature of metal is okay, right? We've obviously seen right now that the the very unrehearsed nature of jazz lends itself to some very interesting things. I mean, Stella by Starlight and So What being completely improvised and being first take and sounding amazing has totally worked out for the jazz genre. But, you know, we, we talk about jazz and metal kind of being parallel lines. There are still some differences, yeah. you know. I think it's jazz has such a deep um, improvisation root. Mm-hmm. Which is why, like, like Stella by Star, like it was a standard then, and he's just like, "Well, I'm just going to do my version, and I'm just going to go and play it," you know. And also, if you went to go see So What, like live, like, and the, and there's still jazz bands that do it this way, where it's like, like my favorite band of all time, Snarky Puppy. I go to mm-hmm. see them at the Canes Ballroom in Tulsa, and they're playing on their new album, and none of the songs. Well, I say none of the songs. Almost all of the songs had a completely different live arrangement than the album. And they all did different solos than they did on the album. And, and who soloed was different. And there's a flute solo on one of them because one of the saxophone players brought a flute to the show. And they're just like, well, we'll play this for the solo. And he's like, just switched in the middle. And the band thought it was hilarious because mm-hmm. they weren't expecting it, you know? And like mm-hmm. one of the songs they played way slower, like complete BPM change for the first half of the song. And then they like mm-hmm. stopped and then they recounted in like for the solo section and then they went back into it. Like they did like the head mm-hmm. and the B section so super slow and then they recounted in the solos at the right tempo. And it's just like and that jazz has just a deep history of like improv right. and you're never gonna hear the song. It's like they pride themselves in never playing the same thing twice. And that's kind of something that we talked about with Queen, right? That they didn't necessarily play the song or play the song the same way every time you saw him live. Every time you saw him live, it was a new experience. Whereas, you know, arguably the biggest name in metal, you know, of all time, certainly in the well, okay, not of all time around the world, but in America, right? Metallica, 
every time you go see them, they're pretty much going to be playing, unless it's like a medley, you know, they're pretty much going to be playing the song yeah. the way it is on the album. And so when they do something like S&M or S&M 2 and they completely change, you know, a, a song off St. Anger they did all within my hands and they did a wonderful orchestral arrangement of that or they did an orchestral arrangement of Unforgiven 3, which I didn't think was such a highlight of the show, but it was something different. And those are the kinds of things you remember. I can't tell you, you know, what songs they did off of like the black album or kill them all or any of the other songs off of um uh, death magnetic but i can tell you the songs that they did differently because it was it was something new to the ear and i i hope that you know obviously queen is rehearsing you know the way that they do their songs live because otherwise they're not gonna be able to follow each other and I think that that's a very good balance that like metal can get from jazz and from Queen specifically, even though Queen's not jazz, but specifically band wise. Yeah, that would that, that would be interesting to see. But obviously, you know, the genre is the way it is, and I'm I keep drawing comparisons between the genres just because that's where I'm coming from. So, listeners, if you're getting annoyed, that's why. <laughs> All right. Shall we to the next? We shall. Oh, by yeah. the way, uh, Stella by Starlight is at number uh, 17. What? Wow, I'm surprised that you ranked it. Why did you rank it so much lower than like Blue and Boogie? Um, I mean, I just, I, I like it. just didn't grab you. It just, I, those ones grabbed me more. Mm-hmm. I, I think, again, in as in a discography this size, seventeen is still really good. That's true. That's true. So, so how about this next song, Milestones? Where'd you put that? Milestones, I put at number eleven. Wow. Really? So this song is his first true modal experiment before um, kind of blue. This is the album. That- it's a it's a milestone. Yeah, this is the um the album that comes before Kind of Blue. Mm-hmm. And um, you can tell that he's um he's trying something new. And this was this was kind of a this was an experiment to see if if he could write a song this way and. And write it the way that he wanted. And I guess the experiment was successful because he did a whole album yeah. like that. But this was this was this was the first song that you can kind of pin on going, okay, this is this is Miles doing a modal song. And you can hear it. You've got that yeah. got that first bum 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 bum. That's your that's like your A section and then you got your B section. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And then back to the A section. Bum, 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 bum. And so, yeah, it's a nice switch. Yeah. Um, I really love the solos on this song. I feel like that B section gives it so much color. It, it does. And especially coming out of like the bebop songs where I feel like he's doing a lot of bebop soloing. Then whenever that B section hits, you just feel like this weirdness 
this like great weirdness with being in a new mode or a new key mm-hmm. and he milks it <laughs> yeah. yeah when when i said kind of like i can't remember if it was earlier in this section or if it was in our first section of how like usually when i listen to jazz it's like around christmas mm-hmm. this is this is the song that reminded me the most of that kind of jazz <laughs> because it's very just bump 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 yeah bum, you know which is like that's okay but yeah. so yeah he def he still had his um but for the most part the band that plays on uh kind of blue is on here except for uh, Bill Evans hadn't entered the picture yet and also Can- Cannonball hadn't entered yet. But mm. um, for the most, like he's, he's still got Coltrane on here. He's still got, um, he's still got his bass player. And um, so you can, you can just, you can tell that this is kind of like, this is the album where he's starting to, um, he's starting to, move in a new direction because mm-hmm. there, there's like on the rest of the album there's still some bop centered songs and still kind of the stuff that you're used to hearing from him but then there's a uh, this is this is this album this song kind of comes up very unexpectedly in the album where you're just like oh this mm. is this is different I remember this this immediately stuck out to me I was just like Okay, there's there's something else happening on this song. Yeah. So that, that's, that, kind of that's interesting. In the that, timeline. That's kind of interesting that you note that because sometimes, you know, we'll say that about um, artists that have vocals that like oh maybe the vocals are slightly different or oh maybe the lyrical content is something that's more like intellectual or something but the fact that it's a because obviously this is still kind of close to that you know bop stuff mm-hmm. in, a, in a very cosmic sense right um related to like this entire set mm. um but i would say this is my uneducated jazz opinion but um, it's interesting that you that you were able to tell that difference without there having to be any kind of like lyrical cues, you know. At, at being very so close, so close, it's just I don't know. Yeah, um, I mean, it did help that I actually I didn't know beforehand that this was a turning point song, but I didn't know why. Just in my research. Okay. I was, I was, I was. So I, when I was listening, I was just like, okay, I know that this is supposed to be like a turning point. And I remember just hearing, and just going, I can definitely hear it. And I hadn't hmm. really cracked the code yet on what modal jazz was and all that. And then when I learned about it, and I learned why kind of blue is the way it was, I went back to milestones. And I was just like, oh, I get it now. I understand what's happening here. Um, that makes sense. Let's let's talk a little bit about Coltrane because mm-hmm. this is I think this is the best his best solo on the set. Yep. Um, he's got some he's got some wild parts that he plays here. 
I always assumed that Coltrane was like a very like smooth, slow kind of player. Nah, man. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was completely wrong. As I started to pinpoint which solos were his, I was just like, no, he is not a slow, smooth player at all. <laughs> I was No, nah, he goes for it every single time. I was way off on that. Miles is more of the subdued guy. Uh-huh. And more of the melodic genius. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah, Coltrane is just a, a maniac player. <laughs> so that was that was one of the most interesting things as far as something, an, an opinion that I had was completely altered. <laughs> but Well, there you I, go. We're not even at final yeah. thoughts yet. Yeah, it's... I think... Yeah, Coltrane... It's always like whenever he comes in, it's just like, it's like he's just screaming that he's there. Mm-hmm. He'll just come in with this run and and just like this high note, and then he'll be like, "And I'm gonna kind of come down," you know. And he's one of those guys that like we talk about musicians in other episodes, where like you know they have this obsessive need to always practice play. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about like like someone like Angus Young that he instead of partying with the rest of the band, he would just like lock himself in his hotel room and just practice. When it's just like you're, you're you're the guitar player in one of the biggest bands of all time, and you're just practicing instead of enjoying the the perks that come with being in one of the biggest. It's like you made it. Yeah, you don't. If anyone doesn't have to practice anymore, it's you. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> Coltrane, I I have found is the same way where. Miles would be like, yeah, me and, you know, some of the other members of the band would, you know, go down to the bar, have a drink, you know, meet some people. And Coltrane would, like, lock himself in his hotel room with saxophone and just practice his scales. Sometimes. That's just what mm-hmm. you do. They said, Randy Rhodes would do that a lot. They said, so. I will say, though, Coltrane, for, for all that we're talking about Miles Davis... And, and and there's a lot of really prolific jazz guys, but Coltrane is heralded as one of the greatest saxophone soloists to ever, 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 and probably for forever will like never be topped as probably the best saxophone soloist of all time. And specifically later, like whenever he starts doing his own career stuff, like you look at like his bebop stuff and his phrasing and the scales that he's using and like the skips that he does and like all that stuff like it's still like the best jazz players today are still like studying how he thought about music because they're trying to emulate still no one has surpassed him wow wow see that's 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 some great context to to add to the to the mixture here like it's it's like he's still like you know how like there are some instruments where it's like oh man like you you know let's learn our scales let's do it and then it's kind of like practice your own style until you get it you know Mm -hmm. there's there's a point in jazz specifically like for soloing where it's like it's almost like victor wooten did a clinic on um playing music and how to teach music And he said, teaching music is like music is more like learning a language than it is like learning a skill. And he said, so the best way, like 
he's like if a one-year-old came up to you and started trying to like engage and interact with you you wouldn't pull out the biggest words that you knew you know you would you would dumb down to their vocabulary because you're trying to have a conversation you know and but like where people are getting at is like the the coltrane vocabulary is so advanced that even the most advanced soloists now are like studying his his um improv vocabulary to try to add to theirs you know what i mean it's like he's like a milestone soloist where it's like you study his stuff for a long time and steal stuff from him to to and hope and pray to god that some of it will rub off on you in your own soloing (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah there there are some people who do that with with uh with guitars like literally exactly transcribing john coltrane solos just to, mm-hmm. it's like that he's like that good to where people are like you could find john coltrane transcribed solos for every song that he's ever played because i'm sure, that, that I'm sure that that's the case for almost every instrument that there is someone who is the, de- the definitive innovator yeah. solo wise yeah he's still the guy i, did, I Coltrane is a, a name that I knew existed, you know, and I had heard that before. It's very familiar to me, and I know that it was like that name Coltrane is important for some genre, and I assumed that it was jazz related, but I, I never understood it until now. I knew who he was and what genre he was in, but I was completely wrong about what he even sounded like. <laughs> man it's not often that that happens to me so it was it's it's always fun to delve into these genres that i just i literally know nothing about yeah, yeah. it always provide proves to be a uh, very illuminating experience um i think we can move on to the final song of the set the final song. This is the longest song of the set, too. Flamenco Sketch It. By, by four seconds. By four seconds. Um, this is the song that closes out uh, Kind of Blue. Well, look at that. We're self That's right. And I put this at uh, number five on the list. To me, mm-hmm. there's just a perfect serenity song. Yeah, this is a nice song, man. <laughs> it's it's a, it's another slow one. I think that's okay, but it's another yeah. slow one. That's 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 really when Miles Davis entered his mold of form. That's where he was at best. And mm-hmm. yeah, if, I can tell. If if his mold of form is his best form, and the slow songs are the the best songs of the modal form, then by logical assumption, this means that these are his best songs. Right. Right. And yeah, I'm just, I'm, I think you said it best. I'm not going to add anything <laughs> to that. <laughs> would you, would you agree with that, Ethan? I, I'm, I'm sorry. I was, I was like very deep in, in the song in my ears. Can you repeat the question? Um, would you agree that yes, um, 
the slow songs are the best part of his modal career and the modal career is the best part of his career that that would mean that his slow songs are his best are his best songs yes I um I I think technically his best songs are his slower songs um, from a comp- not to not not to take away from no his best songs, but I think I think not only are I think his best melodies and his best uh, his best musical ideas whenever it's slow. Uh, I think yeah, the whenever he was introducing modal jazz to everybody, I feel like the space just allowed the drummer and the bass player and the keys, like everybody just kind of got to like free up. And I feel like a lot of what we hear that we think is like so good about it is just like the little isms that all the other band members are playing along with the soloist. And that was just something even back then that was really good. And even now you look back and it's like, that's like, the thing that people strive for now is like that good of chemistry and that good of just on the spot soloing. So yeah, I would would agree that the slow stuff is the technical best. My favorite song didn't make it onto the top six, which is Uh, my favorite Miles Davis song is footprints. Yeah. I, I don't think that's anywhere on the list because I might've just not have gotten to it yet. Uh, it's yeah. That's that's my favorite. And that song has like other significance for me though as well. But yeah, that song is my favorite song. Yeah, mixture because you didn't get to the sixties, did you? No, I fifty nine was my stopping. Yeah, then we'll cover it in a volume two if we ever do one. But uh, yeah, he all the slow stuff was whenever I feel Miles Davis was best because. I look at Miles Davis's trumpet improv on slow songs the same as I would look at like a singer, you know, mm-hmm. and just giving the singer space sometimes to just like mess around in the mids and then just like take it really high, like a really long high note. And then you kind of make it more dissonant over time. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like that was his sweet spot. Yeah. We got that, that nice mute on the trumpet in this song, yeah. which he, Classic. I feel that's yeah, that's such a that's such an iconic, very um uh, it's just that's just that's the classic Miles Davis sound in my again coming from someone that is not super no, well is, known. That something sound. I always felt I knew about him was just like that's that's the sound. Yep. It is the sound. <laughs> Good to know that I was not off on um yeah this this song just has such a grace to abuse i feel like that this is the song that after all these musical ideas you know we we have the down moment with stella by starlight but then we we do have a bit of a, a comeback up with milestone and then this is this is just kind of leaves everything on just a very tranquil note mm-hmm. and i think that for a miles davis set that's kind of like the um, the kind of ending that you want to have with it. You don't want to have like you know something like a big moment and say like a 
like a dream theater episode or where it's like where it's like big bombastic over the top just like hit you with as much sound as possible or like a, or like a welcome to the mm-hmm. black parade where it's you know it's and, yeah, centered around yeah something super huge and epic i think with miles davis the way that you hit that emotional sweet spot is just tapping into that that softer uh beautiful majestic side i agree i think i'm noticing another similarity as well and yet again we're in the sixth song and i still am i talk a lot about like the slayer syndrome of how you have really good riffs but really terrible solos and i think that when you have a fast metal song you know your guitarist is probably going to do some really atonal slayer solo right yeah when you have a much slower solo section your guitarist is going to go super melodic and it's going to be yeah wonderful i find myself doing that as a guitarist i tend to love doing slower solos because i feel like i have more control over the space and i think that that's something that i've seen in this set as well that like Maybe it wasn't so extreme as doing super atonal, not really good to listen to solos for Compulsion and Blue and Boogie, but they weren't as melodically interesting as the stuff that that we've listened to from Kind of Blue, that there is more control over the space when things are slower and when you can, your ear can pay more attention to everything that the soloist is doing and they can take the time to hold out a note and they can take the time to do like a fast run if that's what they want to do. Um, and control the emotion a lot easier that way. And you're able to connect with your listener a lot easier when there's nothing else that's taking up their attention. So Mm -hmm. I still have to get so much credit credit to Bill Evans. Yeah, really. He was the, he was the, the secret weapon of that record. Because like you're listen, it's like you listen to the solos, but then it's like behind all those solos, you just hear. Literally, it's like that, and that's the great thing about. I became kind of a piano player through jazz because of my interest in jazz, and uh, it's it's fun to play jazz piano because it's like you kind of get to solo the whole time, just with yeah. chords instead of notes, you know, because you're just embellishing everything. And so if you just listen, this is like a incredible piano performance like even under all the solos mm. you just hear all of Bill, bill's ideas just coming through on how he thinks that the solo should be going and the back and forth again the communication that i was talking about and so what yeah that that is kind of a, a interesting thing to hear because it's almost like the embellishments are almost a half measure late Yep, and it's because you know, he's he's taking he's stealing the ideas from the soloist and then repeating them back to him. I was like, as a, like I, I I hear you, man. I'm with you. I'm and you. and this this may be a I may be committing a sin here, but um, the new Disney Pixar movie Soul, okay, where they where they have the jazz musicians and whatever, and it kind of portrays like how the jazz band sort of functions towards the beginning of the movie. Um, and he's kind of the main character is watching um, the soloist and he's on piano. And so he's like locked eyes with her 
and it's it's kind of like he is following her and so i felt like there was obviously like he was kind of improvising as well yep. and but it wasn't he wasn't trying to take center stage yep. but he was also trying to like be a supporting role but also be like a lead role it was kind of weird and i don't know how that i didn't really understand how that dynamic worked maybe that's an inaccurate representation that pixar just used for like a character development point but um it makes more sense that they would include something like like a interaction like that yeah after listening to the songs here well it's because it again there's no written parts for the solos it's just like all right, we have the A right. section two times, then the B section. So we're A, A, B, A. Here's the A section. Here's the B section. Right. And then we're going to keep doing that A, A, B, A. But like, if I go down, you need to go down. And if I go up, you need to go up. And I go left, you go left. If I go right, you go right. Got it? Yeah. And, was like, and, yeah, okay, I think I can do that. And then everyone finds their own way through the solos. Right. And and there was kind of like this, like me watching the movie, there's kind of like this this confusion for both me and the and the character. But I think we had a different level of confusion, you know. Whereas he was confused as to like, oh my goodness, I'm with like the greats. How am I going to be able to like compare with their talent or whatever? Whereas I was confused as to how he even was able to follow along, right? Like, how is he able to? But like obviously we talked about how like there's not really 100% a structure to a song and that's something that is foreign to me but I like it because it it I mean obviously it does lend itself to like I talked about this all like throughout this whole episode it lends itself to some very interesting compositions yeah and that's so core to jazz like against like AABA Here's your parts on A, here's your parts on B. Yep. And then we just have yep. to imply A A B A right. for the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, and you can and you can create those really weird extensions to the chords yep. and stuff. Like we didn't even talk at all about jazz chords. And, you know. And like the thing is is that like at this point in jazz so like there's a my favorite jazz artist of all time is Dave Brubeck. Dave Brubeck is the the king in my opinion he's the he's the king of jazz piano all time undisputed champion of jazz piano um it whenever we get to him is whenever like cuz again Miles Davis was more like song form like let's change up the way that jazz is formed and written you know and Dave Brubeck is more like we can do whatever chords we want to as long as the root note is the same, right? And everyone's like, I guess so. It's like, great, let's do that. And it still sounds so... I mean, we're talking like extension, extensioned extensions. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous what that guy's brain is like. But yeah, every that's why jazz is more like a conversation where it's like whoever's soloing, or like dancing, where it's like whoever's soloing is the lead and everyone else is like following, but like they can't be behind, but they also can't be in front of them. And so it's all just, re- it's almost like reading the intentions of, you know, it's, it's almost like you ha- almost have to be like a mind reader and read the intentions. Like, have you guys ever had a moment on stage where it's like, and I know me and Lucas have had these, like whenever we were playing that bluegrass. I mean, exactly what I was thinking of just now. <laughs> 
but it's like you'll do something and you've played the same songs like a ton of times and then you'll just be like i want to i'm gonna do it like a and it mostly happens with drums and bass players, but you could probably relate, Grant, if you ever have played rhythm guitar. So mm-hmm. It's like, I am I do a solo here, and this, for some reason, somehow in this weird universe, because the drummer is like the lead rhythm person, and so I do a solo, and but like Lucas's, Lucas does a bass riff at the same time, and it's almost uncannily on time with my drum hits. I remember you know? I remember there was one specific time we were playing a song. It was at it was in the bluegrass band, and you did this random, uh, like this random three hit drum accent, pow pow pow. You... Yeah, it was in in Rocky Top. Rocky I Top is exactly. <laughs> I just happened to do a three hit octave hit on that chord, and so we. I was just, and I had never done that either. I just felt like, oh, this is this might work right here. And I remember we both looked at each other at the moment and we're like, oh, that was awesome. <laughs> so like jazz is like that all the time. Like you get in this flow state of like hearing someone do something and then just mm-hmm. melodically being so in sync with where they're taking the song that mm-hmm. you you just end up like enveloping their melody is is that something that i mean obviously it would it would come better with more practice with the musicians that you're playing with right mm-hmm. but is that something that naturally happens when you like form like a new jazz band or like add a new member is that just something that is expected to happen I, it's again it's i look at it more like a conversation where it's like mm-hmm. like me and grant haven't been yeah. friends as long as me and Lucas have been friends but the first mm-hmm. time I met Grant like we could carry on a conversation without like me being overbearing or Grant being overbearing because we know like mm-hmm. how to be polite and cordial and carry on a conversation right so, like but if if, but if I had a new member sentences, yes. if I had a new member in jazz and it's like all right this guy's taking his first solo that I've ever heard him play I would mm-hmm. start out like on the drums on the keys I would like give it so much space and I'll always be like, so you can like kind of show me understand. what, show me where you want to take it. And then if they yeah. start like just ripping off and like just going really like a like Coltrane status, if they're just like we're we're ripping it right now, we're going. If you don't respond to him, you know, like you suck. Like you suck for not taking his almost like musical cue that you should be playing more intense to. You know what I'm saying? And you'll notice in a lot of these songs like whenever John Coltrane solos, like you can tell there's more, the band is comping more. The snare drum is in more. The ride pattern's a little bit more intense. The kick drum is in a little bit more. And then Miles Davis shows up and it's almost like the, it kind of like everybody pulls back a little bit to let him have room because they know that he wants room. And you can tell that he wants room by the length of his notes and his phrasing. And whenever he goes to a dissonant note, the keys will play will kind of do something a little bit more dissonant because they're like, oh, do you want to make this a little bit more dissonant? Can I support you? And then if he goes back to more tonic stuff, then the keys will be like, okay, you don't want to go there yet. Well, I'll go back to the tonic too. So it's almost like this, what do you want to do? And I'm going to try to like either push you there, but if you back off, I'm going to back off with you. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to push you to do something you don't want to do, but I'll help you. And so it's like, you're kind of reading the room the whole time. And I think you get more used to it and you get more used to like, 
different players and different languages. Mm-hmm. But as a soloist, like whenever you take a solo, you have to like put put your foot down and like almost like declare your intentions with the band. Like you can't be like a really like half-hearted soloist because then the band is like, mm-hmm. it's like talking to someone who's like, no, what do you want to do? Like, you know, oh yeah. No, I I, I, I I don't have a preference. Like, what do you? Uh, I I don't know what I want. I I'm good with anything. And then it's just like, can you just pick? Like, it's mm-hmm. you pick. We're here for you. If you're soloing, don't look at me. And, like I'm and so sick where we're supposed to go. It's kind of like um, how when you listen to like really young children have a conversation. It's very basic. Their vocabulary is very limited. You know, so that'd be like very, very uh, inexperienced jazz musicians. But if you listen to, you know, people who are our age who have, well, our age, you guys are like 10 years older than me, (laughs) but who have more developed vocabulary, you're able to carry on a conversation a lot better. And so as you get better as a jazz musician, you're better able to like join a new Mm -hmm. jazz band and instantly kind of get grafted in and instantly almost sort of. tell what people's personalities are within like three sentences of talking to them just because of like yeah. experience and and you guys have probably also seen like if you like have ever watched a live show and it's really big even in like rock and then the, like the band like breaks it down to where it's just like hi-hats or like like four on the floor or something and then it's like mm-hmm. everybody this guitar player and then everyone cheers and he has like infinite space like there's it's just him and a kick drum or something you know and he starts soloing and like with nothing behind him. And then kind of slowly the band starts coming in, you know, mm-hmm. or the drummer will add some random hits in there. It's like mm-hmm. that experience, but like the band knows like, Hey, we're, we need to like build this up really big and then go into the chorus, mm-hmm. you know? But imagine like that build section where it's just the guitar player soloing and everyone kind of contributing. Imagine like it's, it's that feeling like the whole time where it's just like you're soloing and I'm kind of, picking where to come in and i'm picking like what drum beat do i want to do next to like build it up like where if i like did a build right now would that be too soon you know and everyone like you guys get that like you a a drummer can come in with the build too soon and you're like i wasn't done with my idea and it's pretty freaking obvious that i wasn't done with my idea you idiot you know or it's smart drummer telling you you've played long enough (laughs) yeah you shouldn't go on but also the band knows like the band can feel each other's natural progression and if the build starts it's like everyone kind of especially in like worship music you know like if a song is built right and everyone's feeling each other it's like you know that the build should hit right here like and it's this subconscious like everybody's just on the same page somehow with everything that they're playing and they all build at the same time because everyone is cueing each other to do that because that's just what it wants to do jazz is just that on like an extreme version but also like a minimalist version Hmm. everyone's just reading each other the whole time so jazz is just a podcast with instruments (laughs) that's right okay well well, yeah, that was that. A, a great way, I think, to uh, kind of bring to a conclusion. Uh, we'll go ahead and take another break here. When we come back, we are going to give our final thoughts about Miles Davis and jazz as a whole. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done with our sixth song set for the week for Miles Davis, which was So What? Compulsion, Blue and Boogie, Stella by Starlight, Milestones, and Flamenco Sketches. And now it's time for our final thoughts. We did our first thoughts in the first section. And now our final thoughts are just how has our uh, impressions of jazz changed? How's our impressions of Miles Davis changed? So, Grant, final thoughts go. Well, I fully expected after first thoughts to come in here and say, well, I've grown my appreciation for jazz. And I guess I've learned that there's more music out there that is good you know some kind of cop yeah. thing but going through the songs individually and talking about like where they fit in the history kind of put things in perspective which is always nice you know that's always something that that makes you appreciate the songs themselves more versus just the genre because like you know jazz is not something i listen to so i needed to grow in that appreciation first before i actually looked at the the songs themselves and it helped that i listened to these you know a million times uh, but putting them in the context of each other helped me appreciate the kind of blue album a lot um, more just knowing that like you know because i'd listen to the songs i'd look at the title but i wouldn't really pay attention to what album they were on but now that i've seen like the fact that those three songs sort of fit together you know so what sell it by starlight and flamenco sketches which really have grown to become kind of towards the closer to being my favorite song like none of them are still my favorite song um well yeah none of them are still my favorite 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 song um but they're all still really good and i think that they were consistently very good and if i were going to listen to which i probably will if i find time in the next few days um if i were going to listen to an album it would definitely be kind of blue and, and it's not one that I'm going to have to find time to sit down and listen to. I think that I would be able to to kind of, you know, do it while I'm doing work or something. And that's good because sometimes when you're listening to new music, you can you can kind of get caught up in, like, unfamiliar things. But I don't think that that, that would distract. And I think that that can serve a musical purpose in my life. I'm I'm curious to see Ethan what kind of jazz fusion um, gymnastics you try to throw at me in after hours or whenever. Uh, <laughs> That's because after after hours after after hours, <laughs> uh, because I'm I, I'm excited to get converted to a genre because like why would you not be excited to find something else that you love. Right, because if I do, if I do end up genuinely loving jazz and jazz fusion, I don't think that's that's a bad thing, right? Um, I'm certainly not there yet. You know, I'm not going to say like, man, I listen to jazz, or man, I really like Miles Davis. I don't think that's fair yet to someone who does. But I am more curious right now into into jazz, and I wouldn't be without this episode. And I'm ready to listen to more and I'm ready to listen to kind of blue. And even just through the course of this episode, I think that I've grown in my curiosity and growing in curiosity, I think is more than just growing in appreciation. 
because that curiosity will lead to even more. So that's my final thought. And oh, favorite song. Favorite song is I have to I have to go with Blue and Boogie. Whoa! I was not expecting that. I have to go with Blue and Boogie. Why? Why? Well, I don't know. Something about like the energy of it. It was like it was between Blue and Boogie and Compulsion. Right. It's like Bop guy. I like the. I didn't think I was either. But I like the I like the kind of blues songs. It's definitely not milestones. I hate to say it, but it was between it was between compulsion, blue and boogie, sell my starlight, and so what. And it's just I felt that every time I listened to blue and boogie, I was just I was just interested. I just it got me moving, you know. It's kind of that like that's such a simple reason to choose your favorite song, but it just yeah, blue and boogie. I am. <laughs> I stand so, by. It. I am so shocked that you said definitely not milestones because that was that's my favorite song. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, see, that's just that's just our different tastes, I guess. I so what is the is is a close second. And it's also because of historical reasons. I've played So What so many times. I have I have physically played So What. I'll, like, I can't even count how many times I have played freaking So What. But it's a good song. But it's just like, that's the song. Like, Who will play So What? Sure. Um, man, I feel like the B section to Milestones is so cool. Like, because it's... But, and then whenever the B section comes in, it's all like trailing almost, and all those harmonies and stuff. Ah, oh, man, it's so good. And and I feel like Milestones has the biggest modal differences in the solos, which is also why I was drawn to it. But but so I was I was like, what? How's how's Milestones so out of it? I love the modal changes on Milestones. That's why I'm picking it, and it still has that upbeatness, you know. Because I like the vibe, mm-hmm. um, but so Mostens, uh is probably my favorite, and I would say my final thoughts is um, one. I think the set was great, Lucas. The set was really good. Thanks. I think it. I think it was a good job of. I, I would say for me personally, I. I'm probably I I have known milestones, but it's because like that's kind of also kind of a standard. But kind like most people start their Miles Davis journey at um at kind of blue and they work up. And I was definitely in that category where it's like kind of blue is the record where he figured himself out, and I'm just gonna listen to that. It was cool to I had never heard Compulsion in Blue and Boogie. I'd never really heard anything about his um bop and like the hard bop period um it was cool to hear the history but i think for me it's just a a wider appreciation talking about because i i knew that he was a big modal guy i didn't i don't i would have never contributed him with the credit of pushing everybody into uh modal jazz like that next phase so that was cool to learn. I think for me, it's, I have, even though I am, I guess on this podcast, I'd be like the jazz guy, you know, cause I like jazz. Um, I would say all in all, 
it's been a while since I've gone back to Miles Davis because he's kind of, um, again, I'm trying to think of like a rock equivalent, like Miles Davis and the Rolling Stones are, are, it's probably the same where it's like, everyone's like, Oh, the Rolling Stones, they were important. And I've listened to their songs before because they're important. You know, Miles Davis was kind of same where it's like, if you don't listen to some Miles Davis, you can't really call yourself like a jazz player because he's so influential and there's so many standards that are his. So I went through my phase where I was like, man, Miles Davis is great. And then I like backed off of it for a while. And I went more like to the Dave Brubeck and the fusion and, and more there. So it was cool to go back to the roots of it and, and to really study the history of why he was so prolific so that changed my way that I even look at it and it'll probably change the way that I play. Um, and it was just, I, I thought for me, it was like a fun teaching experience because like for two guys that like, not that you're like, you're not stupid, but like, you don't, you like, there's so many, there's so many small things about the jazz genre that, that are like very exclusive to jazz that I didn't realize was exclusive until you guys were talking about it. Like, and even Lucas saying, I don't really, I played a yes solo because I didn't really understand how to solo. And I was like, I've never even thought the thought of how to solo because I've always just done it because I've just been in it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. To, you know? And like, That's... all of Grant's questions were great, great questions that I had never even thought of. I'm just like, how do I describe comping on someone else's solo in a way that someone that hasn't just always comped on other people's solos would understand you know how do i explain this pseudo mind reading that goes on with everyone on stage you know yeah i mean i've i've understood how to solo and improvise i just yeah the language aspect is completely yeah because in metal soloing over a part that everyone else is playing right in rock everybody would just be playing your stock part yep right it would like this is your part during the solo instead of like trying to follow the soloist it's a completely different idea so so yeah miles davis again he's prolific he changed a lot and it, it, it for me it was an increased appreciation and i think especially like the history of it and and kind of the story and the backstory of why modal jazz came to be i think that was cool because i can relate to that because you listen to a lot of bop jazz and after a while it's just like man bop jazz is very similar to itself you know (laughs) all of it is very similar except for the solos and it's cool to you can almost feel miles davis's frustration on milestones where he's just like can we just try something different and then he's like then i'll just do it and then he just does it and it works and then that ushers us into a completely new era of even how to think about soloing which is crazy to think about being so good that you change the language of jazz for forever. Anyways, I could go on and on. Lucas, uh, what was your favorite song? That's my that's my big question. After thinking about it, I think I also have to pick Milestones. Oh, man. Hop on the Milestones bandwagon. Disregarded. Oh, my God. That was, the, that was the other one that I was going between in my mind. Blues and Boogie? Yeah, so Blue and Boogie, Blue and Boogie, and Milestones. It was just like I, I know it's one of those two, 
And the more I thought about it, and and as you were explaining, Ethan, I was just like, yeah, you know what? I think it's I think it's milestone. I just I love that I love that head section. I think that the solos grab me the most on that song. And I just have found myself overall like enjoying myself the most during that song when it comes on. So um yeah, that's that's what I'm gonna stick with. Um so for me I kind of was right in the middle of both of you guys because I did know some about jazz just from having to be around it. Um, especially <laughs> my years of forced as, being forced to teach it. <laughs> I was forced to teach it somehow. I still don't know how I did that, but um, yeah, I, but I've, obviously I did not have the, the knowledge that, Ethan had and not the familiarity with it that Ethan had and so for me it was like I, I knew enough to be able to understand the language as they were as I was reading and hearing about it but um, I definitely came at it from the perspective of someone that is not an aficionado of jazz um, for me I feel like I understand jazz a lot more now. Whether or not I'm still going to start saying, well, I'm a jazz like follower, I don't know if I'm there yet. I definitely feel like this is, you know, this is the place to start. Yeah. Miles Davis is the place to start. Yeah. And I'm I'm curious now to see where all it's going to start leading. But you know, I, I I wouldn't say yet. Oh yes, I'm I'm a jazz fan. I'm a mile I, I, or a Miles fan. I'm definitely an appreciator and have um, grown in appreciation for the genre overall. And I feel like just again, I understand it so much more now. Um, knowing the history helps a lot. And um, I I had a lot of fun making this episode. I, I won't. I just won't say yet that I'm like okay. Let's take the plunge. There's. I feel like yeah. there's still. I, I have to find that artist for me that I'm just like okay. This is this is the artist that I'm gonna hang my journey on of jazz onto. But this is a good intro. It is, and you know that's that's the the way that I'm approaching it with our listeners as well as hopefully. You also hear and go, huh, I'm interested. I don't think jazz is just a, a, a dumb, old, boring genre that old people and weirdos like. <laughs> Which Yeah, and people who can't learn their skills. <laughs> That's now, obviously been debunked. Now we know it's people that have ultimate mastery of their scales. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, but thank you everyone that has listened to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe. And, uh, we have new episodes every Monday morning, 9am central. We're kind of sticking with, um, out of the box picks for this month. You know, there's not going to be a whole lot of, you know, rock and roll this month, especially with how rocking January was, it was like all rock and roll pretty much. And we're kind of doing an, an un-rock and roll month. And so we're going to be do- talking about a modern 
artist uh, next week. One of the biggest artists. I would I would actually say the biggest artist of the last ten years. So make sure that you uh, tune in for that next week. And if you want to uh, connect with us on social media, let us know what artists you would like to hear an episode on. Please uh, connect with us. We love to see your suggestions. And we are doing a fan requested suggestion at least once a month for this year. That's going to be a promise that I'm going to make to you guys. So um, please send us your suggestions. We are listening. And if you want to become a patron, check out the link in the description of the episode. And right next to that link is another link that takes you to the Spotify playlist. It has all these songs. Please go listen to these songs. It would be, again, very sad if you got to this point and it was just like, eh, I don't like jazz. I'm not going to listen to them. That you would be doing yourself a very big disservice. So make sure that you go check out those songs. And those of you that are patrons, we'll see you in After Hours. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music.